Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to From Bob's Office. I'm Jake Mathis. It is currently December 12th at 1222. Wow, that was really planned extremely well. We really should have started 10 minutes ago. We should have, but all Missed well. opportunity. Um, I'm Jake Mathis, sitting next to me. I'm Jacob Bomber, and the next voice you hear belongs to one of my best friends. We met when we worked together at Albertsons 15 years ago, and his example in friendship was the spark that brought me to Christ. He is a professional poet, writer, speaker, and many other titles of that nature, and he is one of the smartest, most talented, hardest-working people I know. I am really excited to have him on the show today, and for all of you to meet him and learn about him, ladies and gentlemen, Micah Bornet. What up, y'all? Bag boys for life. Let's go. <laughs> Still written in my Bible. Is it really? Yeah. That's funny. The Bible that I brought to yeah. FCA on Tuesday, because it's, it's Micah gave it to me. Oh. How adorable. Is this yep. going to be a tearful episode? I mean, hey, if we need to cry, we're going to cry. If the Lord leads. No shame. <laughs> um, yeah. I have the hiccups. <laughs> That's a good start. Convenient. That you shouldn't have burped before you were ready to go. I don't think, I think those correlate. I, well, one of us knows more about science, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> no. Not this again. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. We're fine. Um, You'll learn eventually. Do we have – we don't really have anything to intro. Really. I mean, we have football to talk about, but – oh, yeah, I guess we can – what did you just whisper at me? What happened? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's that. Um, so we go bowling every Wednesday night, as the very first episode of the show <laughs> would remind you some funny stuff happens at bowling. Last night wasn't funny. Last night was amazing. So uh, one of my really good friends who I've probably referenced on the show multiple times, Nick – he has been dating uh, another friend, Jillian, for a few years now. And at bowling, Nick proposed, and she said yes. And it was incredible. And I almost cried, and Emily almost cried. And there was a lot of happiness and, and excitement and shock because only a couple <laughs> people there knew that it was going to happen. And Jillian was not one of them. She was very, very shocked. And it was great. And it was beautiful. And I am very excited for the future and what that's going to look like for them. It was great to be a part of. Yeah. So that was really, I was really happy. I'm like still very excited about it. I'm glad I'm on this episode. I'm a poet. I love romance. <laughs> <laughs> this is the episode for me. Thanks for that <laughs> intro. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much more we're going to talk We're definitely not about one subject. One subject is not very romantic. The other one is spiteful and Anger. <laughs> What's that? You'll learn. I don't... What do I have strong emotions against that just happened recently? On Tuesday. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. Wait. We don't want to get there Well, right yeah, now? I mean, well... No. Okay. We could. Well, now that we're there, I guess we will. This is how this goes, Micah. Things just happen, and we will get to football later, I guess. Let, I'll we can just do let, it after. No, I'll just let Jake take over. Go. Garrett Cole did not sign with his hometown Angels. Instead, he went and joined the evil empire that is the New York Yankees. Shaved his glorious beard, his glorious hair, to join this monopoly of evil incorporation that already has 27 rings, and so now they're just going to get more because they have the best pitcher in the world. So I'm pretty upset about that. We were driving. I hope, I hope Mike Trout hits a home run off him right away. I mean, I don't know when we play them. We were driving home from – you don't care about any of that, but we were driving home <laughs> from – I was like, I don't know much about baseball, but it kind of sounds like LeBron coming to the Lakers. No, no, no. 
It's more like LeBron going to um, Miami. Uh, Miami doesn't have a lot of rings. Oh, well, I don't know. I, I think more LeBron going to Lakers is a little more happier sense. I was happy about it. But, I mean, a lot of people were saying the same thing, like going to a franchise that already won so mm-hmm. much, you know. Uh, Just to keep winning. To yeah. Even, yeah. Uh, understandable. I can see that now. Yeah. But I'm all for LeBron and the Lakers. Yeah, there's people aren't like mad that Cole went to the Yankees. Just, I am. Just you and some other Angels fans because <laughs> we're, we was, wanted him. He was the chosen one. He was supposed to destroy the Sith, not join them, and yet there he goes, joining them. Jake loves Star Wars and will reference them frequently, and that's what he just did. That was a tweet he sent me yesterday that involved. You oh, laughed. I did. It was funny. It's just hard to <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a lot of jokes that I don't get. I mean, it wasn't a I'm funny joke. I'm not into joke. baseball. Just, I'm not into Star Wars. Oh, I love Baby Yoda, though. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? Baby Yoda is just a gift to this universe. But you haven't watched any <laughs> Not <other>. a single <laughs> episode. But he is killing the meme game right now. And that, you know, the little hot chocolate and the coat. And it's just, it warms my heart. <laughs> I, I saw a thing, and it was, um, if he ever gets hurt, I'm going to personally walk down the Disney and burn them down. Like. <laughs> so, yeah, we we lost out on one of the biggest opportunities ever, and sadly, he joined the evil empire of the Yankees, and I'm very upset about it, visible, visibly and emotionally. It's true. He's been upset for 38 I'm hours. I'm force myself hours. to eat now. Yeah, I turned my sorrow into eating. It's gonna just turn into more sorrow. <laughs> it will. Five pounds of honey baked sorrow. <laughs> Sounds pretty great to me. <laughs> I wonder if I'm gonna classify as honey baked after that. <laughs> <laughs> if your body mass constitutes a certain percentage of something else, you become part of that. Yeah. What if I just sweat out so honey glaze? So you'll be eight percent Native American and one percent honey glaze. I am more than eight percent, thank you. But <laughs> I was guessing. I don't remember. Ten. How are you? Why, why people always be trying to claim the Native American? No, 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 no. Like I have legit. Like I believe you, dog. I'm just saying. It's like what? My, my. It's so funny to me. <laughs> So okay, my grandma Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> Yikes. I'm sorry. So my grandma I'm not sorry at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I love it. <laughs> so So my grandma's um my grandma's grandmother, either grandma or the great grandmother, her she is like one of the last of her kind to be able to um weave a basket so she is a basket in the smithsonian in like the native american section and like we have or her cousin so my i don't know what that would be to me but her cousin he was a chief on the or he was a chief in north carolina for like multiple years and then yeah so i have a bit and then my grandma was buried with an eagle feather and all those fun things what? yeah well, you know what tribe uh cherokee <laughs> what if I just made up one? You'd be like, ah, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, you could have. I wouldn't know the difference. It's jerky. <laughs> so, besides losing out on Garrett Cole, we also acquired somebody. Yeah, possibly. If he passes his uh, physical tomorrow. I, he almost won National League MVP. I think he's going to pass a physical. Spoiler. How? Okay. <laughs> 
His name is Anthony Rendon. I was saying, what third is baseman name? from the World Series champion Washington Nationals. Yeah. We paid him the exact contract that Garrett Cole got from the Yankees, seven years, two hundred forty five million dollars. No. Yeah. Garrett Cole made three. What do you mean made three? Three twenty five. Oh, you're right. I meant Strasburg. Strasburg was seven years, two hundred forty five. Cole is That's nine, weird that nine all years. of them. Oh, I thought they were all seven no, years. He's nine like, years, three hundred twenty something million. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> I don't even know what I would do with that. <laughs> They're all averaging at least $35 million a year. That's crazy. It'd be That's a nice a house. Hey, <laughs> 35 nice houses a year for seven years. <laughs> oh, my. You would literally own it. Like You would Real literally own local. Rhode Island. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm really excited about Rendon. You're a little... So I I enjoy that we are we're bringing in like a star power to have a sidekick for Mike Trout, but my issue is like I really hope that this doesn't mean we're shipping off David Fletcher because I'm a big fan of David Fletcher and so I'm just like on my hands and knees praying that we do not lose David Fletcher because he has so much upside to him and I know the family so it's really cool to me. Do you really pray over your baseball team? Yeah. No judgment, just curious. Yeah, I am my football, mostly my football team. Okay, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if you were just exaggerating or. If I also have a shrine for my football team most of the time. Discipline. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Health and hey. success. And More power to you, man. He he talks about the Packers and the Angels more than I talk about the Rams and the Angels. Oh wow, that's impressive. They're they're very near and dear to me. Yeah. Parts of me. How? Uh, wh- what are the <laughs> connections to the Packers? Uh, so it was just like family, like my whole family likes them pretty much. So it was like okay. that we grew up into it. From there originally. Or uh, my dad's from Iowa, so it's kind of close. But Iowa doesn't have sports teams, gotcha. so that he kind of picked one. And gotcha. That's what he picked. Fair enough. So then we kind of. I'm always like, why are you a Packers fan or any type of sports yeah. fan when you're it's not just from that, the yeah, place? It's but just, that makes sense. You got yeah. the connection, yeah. And it's just a fun, loving community of great people and cheese great heads. cheese. Yeah. I have one. I have a cheese head. I mean, I don't, especially being from here and the fact that for a long time, L.A. did not have a football team. I mean, if you like football, you wanted to root for somebody. Mm-hmm. So people just picked other places. So yeah. cats who are, like, from Southern California now who have a different team, I'm like, all right, you know, it's like you you chose a team. I get it because we didn't have nobody mm-hmm. to root for. But now, yeah, I'm I'm glad the NFL returned to L.A., though. Yeah, um, I've been able to go to NFL games now, which is yeah. fun. <laughs> I saw my team, which I wouldn't have imagined doing because it's too expensive and going to Green Bay and stuff like that. So like, I got to see my team play, even though we lost, but I got to see my team play. Word. And Seahawks. I like the Seahawks, too. Just because my grandpa's from Seattle. Lives in Seattle right now. So I, I, I don't necessarily... They're not my team. I support them, though, when they're playing. Mm-hmm. Like, I always text them, like, go Hawks, just... Kind of like a, a one-two thing for me and him to go back and forth about. Shout out, Grandpa. You won't listen to this because I'm pretty sure you don't know what a podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> um, He'd probably be proud of me if I ate a ham. He can break an apple with one hand. Would, like he, like like he will can hold. just squeeze it and yeah. it'll explode? Yeah, it's really cool. I don't know if he still can, but he used to be able to. That's a weird... You try it. Talent. I don't want to. Sorry. I, I feel like you could probably actually do it. I don't feel that way. Mm. My grip is not that strong. Mm. 
I'm not a climber. I don't. You worked with air conditioning units, so it's pretty heavy. You got to, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do we have any more Anthony Rendon analysis other than I'm just should excited. he should he hit in front of or behind Trout? Should Trout protect him Ooh. or should he protect Trout? I th- I'd rather he protect Trout because Trout gets on base. Yeah, so I'd rather him be clean up for Trout. So we'd go like, ideally we either do Lastella or Fletcher first, mm-hmm. Otani, Trout, Rendo, Pulhos. Um Whoever plays, or no, Adele uh, or Simmons or yeah, it just depends on who yeah. we have for the last three spots, four, three, four, whichever one, four. I'd rather him hit behind Trout too. I want Trout to get more pitches to hit and not just walk him and move on to the worst. The next person, yeah, the next person being a good hitter too would be helpful with that. Yep. Well, there's that. That's baseball talk. So this Who are the Rams football. playing? Uh, the Rams are playing at Dallas. Ooh, big game. Yeah, we need to win. I need Dallas to win. We talked about this on Tuesday a little bit more extensively, but yeah, we need to win. If we don't win, that screws us to try to get to the playoffs. And the fact that Dallas and Philly are now tied for the division lead at six and seven. <sighs> That's so bad. But, like, if Philly wins out, Philly goes to the playoffs. Apparently, they have the tiebreaker or something. So They play again in Week 16. So that makes sense. I mean, so I feel like Dallas, if Dallas wins out, wouldn't they also? I guess because Philly was playing the Giants on Monday night. They were specifically talking about Philly <coughs> controlling their own destiny in that way. But I don't care about them. I care about us, and we really need to win. And we really need, well, I don't care if you win this week against the Bears. We I actually want you to lose against the Bears. That way you're super mad and you come out and wreck the Vikings. That's what well, I want. We normally play both teams pretty well. so. And it's a home game for you. Oh, yeah. So I really don't anticipate that happening. <coughs> but. Well, spoiler alert, because we're playing the Bears. Um, I expect us to win. I'm not going to say points anymore. I expect us <laughs> to win by at least one point. He thought they were going to beat a bad team last week by more than 14 points, and they beat the bad team by five points. Still beating them. <laughs> ugly win, still a win in the yeah, win yeah, category. Yeah. I wouldn't mind an ugly win all the way to Super Bowl. In the words of Aaron Rodgers. Yep, yep. Well, tonight's game, super entertaining. There was a game tonight? <laughs> Today's Thursday. Jets at Ravens. Oh, man. <laughs> no Ravens by 18. Yeah, the Ravens are so good. I'm pretty sure the, the spread so is 18. Bad. It should be. I haven't done my pickums yet. Oops. I'll get there. But, yeah, Lamar Jackson's going to run all over the Jets and I can get a lot of fantasy Jets. points for my team that's no longer in the playoffs, so it doesn't matter. Do so I have anyone playing? <laughs> wasting Lamar Jackson on my team. I have uh, Mercedes Brown playing tonight. Oh, that. Mercedes Brown? Yeah, the Hollywood Brown? Marquise. <sighs> yeah. I, I did a little time. Words get confused in Jake's head a lot. Names, words, I, things. I know. He knows what he means. Yeah. And luckily I'm here to translate. But, yeah. So, uh, we wouldn't necessarily endorse watching tonight's game unless you are just interested in seeing how well Lamar Jackson can I'm play. I'm going to Naples. Oh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to Huntington. Oh. Neither of us are watching the football game, so... <laughs> There you go. That's enough of an endorsement. Bills at Steelers Sunday night. 
Ooh. That should be really entertaining because the Bills are one game up on the Steelers for the fifth wild card spot. So they're both in the wild card right now. And if Pittsburgh wins, then that pretty much kind of cements. I really thought Pittsburgh that. was terrible until like last week. I realized I'm like, wow. Yeah, they're eight they're and five. Eight and five. So. I expected them to be just trash, but look at them. As Jesse told us, they probably have. He thinks they have the best defense in the league now that they lead the league in. What do they lead in? Sacks and turnovers or something? Sacks, turnovers, and quarterback hits, I think. Well, that one didn't. That's not a stat that matters. But, like, sacks and forced turnovers, maybe. Mm-hmm. So good. Defense wins championships, and their offense isn't that good. No. So. Well, hey, man, Duck is undefeated. <laughs> Duck Hodges is undefeated. Pittsburgh's quarterback's name is Delvin Hodge. Mm-hmm. But he is like a champion duck caller. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so he goes by duck. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and somebody from Duck Dynasty last week like sent a message of encouragement to him or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. Wow. So, and then Monday night is Colts at Saints. That should be entertaining. Oh, I should actually. Yeah. I am going to say Saints, though. Well, yeah. The, Sorry, Pat. The Colts aren't as good as I hoped they were going to be at the start of this year. Yeah, they don't have Pat McAfee. <laughs> so. Or Adam Vinteri anymore. Yeah. Anticipate a Saints blowout. Well, Hopefully not. Hopefully it's a good entertaining game. But, yeah, the slate's just kind of weird this week. I didn't really look at any of the other big games because I only cared about us. Hopefully, hopefully we do not lose to the Cowboys. I'm gonna be so sad, sitting at home, surrounded by Chuck and Cody and Katrina. Because yeah. last year we played them last year in the playoffs and we won, and that was also kind of depressing because all of them were just mad the whole time. <laughs> I was the only person in the house celebrating. And then, why are they Cowboys fans? Because Chuck, Chuck was. A Cowboys fan when he was a kid. He loved Roger Staubach, their quarterback in the 70s. Gotcha. Because Katrina grew up in the San Diego area, mm-hmm. and so she was a Chargers fan growing up. Um, but then when she married Chuck, she just adopted the Cowboys, and so Devin and Kimberly got that. And then Kyle got a John Elway jersey for his like birthday or Christmas. I don't know why. And because, like, when he was, like, seven or something. Because John Elway was just good at the time. Yeah, he was really good. But, like, you're a Cowboys fan, so why are you giving your son a Broncos jersey? That is very true. I didn't think about that. I mean, but, you know, what kid doesn't want a Jordan jersey when Jordan was playing, even if they weren't a Bulls fan? I mean, I guess. So he became became a Broncos fan because of it. And then Cody came along, and Cody's a Cowboys fan. So, There's just one odd man out. I mean, and there are... Because those teams have been around the longest, the Cowboys and the Packers and the Giants and the Eagles and stuff, the Bears, they have fans all over the country because yeah. they were the main teams for a long time. So it's not it's not like basketball where like yeah. basketball is very locationally driven. Football, people are fans from everywhere. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Do we care about any more of that stuff? Um, no. We haven't, we haven't had a Minshew minute in weeks. I haven't seen anything cool about him <laughs> lately. He had a pretty good interview, though. He, They asked him, like, what are you playing for? And he's like, uh, you know, I just really enjoyed the game, so I'm just going to keep playing. 
And I was like, that's a pretty good response. And then there was one response to a guy, like, who, like, they, like, asked him, like, it was, like, last week, and they asked, like, kind of the same thing. We're like, you guys are kind of, you guys are, like, pretty much eliminated for the playoffs. Like, there isn't really a reason for you guys to keep playing. Are you going to keep going out and playing? He's like, so what's your name again? <laughs> and then he's like, oh, I remember your name. Like, he talked about this, uh, he talked to a reporter before, and he's like, yeah, you know, I remember your name. It's Anthony something something. It's really impressive that I remember it because I told myself I'd forget you, but <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> it, he's a great guy. I, I mean, Minshew is by far one of my favorite, like, internet quarterbacks. For what? <laughs> you Probably were, ever. You were pulling on the cord, and I was like, your microphone's very loose. Why is this happening? Technical no, difference from that one. No, it doesn't. The turning part does. No. I wasn't. This oh, wasn't tight. Well, good luck with that. I literally tightened it. So, because we talked about Brian Scalabrini on Tuesday, last night I went back and looked up some Scalabrini highlights, and they're fantastic. He does. He was on the Nets a long time ago when the Nets played the Lakers in the finals. Hmm. He uh, was kind of like a big power forward, um, and he had a really good. Eastern Conference finals and because of that he was a free agent after that year and he signed like a three year twelve million dollar contract with the Celtics the next year. Mm-hmm. And he is the cousin of my best friend in middle school and high school. Oh cool. And so for whatever reason Aaron on Tuesday I guess brought him up and I was like, Oh fun fact <laughs> I've met him. I know. Um and cool. so but he like his nickname's the White Mamba. <laughs> intentionally because it's just stupid ironic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I went back and watched a couple of highlight videos because people made highlight videos because they're just ridiculous. Literally, on on almost every single highlight, if you look in the corner at like the time, it's always fourth quarter with like two minutes left or less. Because <laughs> gotcha. that's the only time he's in the game. Every time he touches the ball, the fans go nuts because they love that he only plays a little bit. And so that's if awesome. he makes a basket, they go crazy. And it's super funny. And he gives pretty good interviews. There was after the Celtics, because he was on the Celtics team that beat the Lakers uh-huh. in ten or nine or whenever it was. Fixed myself. Yeah, yep, he I'm uh, sad again. He he was up on you know doing a press conference afterwards, and some random person was like, "So you didn't get to play a single minute the whole time. How do you feel about like, <laughs> it still being a champion, even though you like didn't really do anything?" Like, who asks the question, A, but he just was, like, rolled with it. He was like, well, you know that now, but 10 years from that, from now, no one's going to care. 20 years from now, like, I'm definitely telling my kids (laughs) that that I was a starter. 30 years from now, I'm going to tell everybody I was MVP. Who's going to care? No one's going to (laughs) know. He said that? Brian did that. It was fantastic. I was like, yes, I love Brian. (laughs) Great. So That's hilarious. And what, a, what a rude question. Yeah, it's terrible. Like, yeah. what? Get out of here. But he handled it super well. And he, there was a stretch of time where he was doing some videos where he would play random people one-on-one. Like, he had people, because he was doing a radio show, and there are people that are like, oh, I could beat you easy. Because, like, if you look at, like, he's he's a big, he's like 6'9", 260 or something. Mm-hmm. At least he was when he was playing. So he's like a big, but just like kind of clumsy, slow-looking white guy. Mm-hmm. But, like... He's still a professional basketball player. Yeah, he's in player. the freaking NBA. <laughs> like, people don't understand yeah. the level that it takes. So he would, like, let people, yeah, challenge me, come out, whatever. And he'd play them one-on-one, and he would just smoke <laughs> them, them without looking like he was giving any effort at all. Just, yeah, like, yeah. if you play off him because you don't want him to drive by you, he's going to hit the shot in your face. And if you play up on him, 
he knows how to dribble by you and just use his body to bump you off. Like you literally can't do anything. That's and funny. so all these people like come in all super confident, like, oh, I can take you. Like, no, nah, he's a professional athlete. He may not look like it. He may look like some big slow white guy, but you don't get to the NBA by not having yeah. skill. And he's on the bench in the finals, which means if something happened, they would have put him in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like they ain't gonna have just some regular dude who can't hoop. Yeah. So he, I, I love Brian. He's great. Long since retired. He was. He has been playing in the big three, though. Have you watched any of that at all? I've only seen a little bit of it, and it's so entertaining. It's very entertaining. <laughs> it Isn't is it like a four-point shot? Yeah. It's from, like, five more feet behind the three-point line. But the basketball quality isn't super great. <laughs> they definitely have diminished skills, and it's just a lot of hard contact in the lane and running into <laughs> each other and stuff. It's literally every... It's just egos colliding. <laughs> That's <laughs> really... Every every shot is either a four-pointer or just somebody getting fouled under the basket. But it's all these guys that we grew up watching who are all just kind of like a little bit older and slower now, and it's pretty funny. Yeah. So Whatever happened to Birdman? Oh, man. I, did he – I want to say he was in the big three. I feel like I he saw him. He was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He kind of just fell off. <laughs> he had rose to greatness for like two or three years and then – went away he was one of the more entertaining individuals in the league chris anderson formerly of the nuggets and what team was he on that was like actually important was it the celtics i don't think he was on the celtics i remember him mostly on the nuggets so that's just me recall now he has impressive tattoos though he does very much all right well (laughs) the shortest Miami. Sports intro. Oh, that makes sense. He's from Long Beach. Where? Yeah. Where did he go to high school? Because <laughs> this is what matters when you're from Long Beach. I I feel like I would have known if he went to a actual Long Beach, LBSD. New York. <laughs> no, yeah, Long Beach, California. Uh, Birdman grew up in Long Beach. Oh, wait, no. Was born in Long Beach, grew up in Texas. Oh, Doesn't man. count. He's not from Long Beach. How did they say that? He played I mean, for depends Denver. On, depends on when he moved. Well, if he moved before he was like eight, then now he's not from Long Beach. If he moved at like eight or nine, we still claim him. He started playing um, for in. Um, he moved when he was four. Yeah, dad, not from Long Beach. He played for whoever the Sugarland Sharks are, and that sounds fantastic. Sugarland Sharks. What does that mean? Is it it's Sugarland Sharks or Sugarland Sharks? Sugar <laughs> Sugarland. <laughs> Sugar Land is like the city, gotcha. and then Sharks, because like, Land Sharks would be really cool. <laughs> where where did you find that? I'm on his Wikipedia. <laughs> Me too. Literally sure. right where his career history, on the top. Okay. You think these guys know a lot about sports? They're just Googling the whole time. <laughs> okay, when it's Chris Anderson and his career included the Jiangsu Nangang Dragons of the Chinese Basketball Association the and New the Mexico New Mexico Slam, Slam of the Inter- <laughs> International Basketball League, where he averaged just 1.1 points and 1.6 rebounds Oof. in 10 games. I feel like if you can't average two points a game in the International Basketball League for the New Mexico team, then what are you doing? Yeah. So New Mexico has a team in an international. Well, it was league. in it was in 2000. 
Yeah, I'm just saying that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. You did play in the big three. It's in the international. Uh, I just thought it would be like you know. Short lived. Started in '99 and ended in 2001. Gotcha. But it had teams in Baltimore, Cincinnati, Connecticut, Gary, Indiana, Grand Rapids, oh, Las Vegas, New Mexico, Richmond, Rockford, Trenton, San Diego, St. Charles, Missouri, and Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It's not very international. It's very middle of the country plus San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Midwest is a different country from San Diego. <laughs> yeah, this is really funny. What was the San Diego team called? The Stingrays. Oh, man, that's not even good. I hate Stingrays. There was, there was, the Cincinnati's team was called Cincinnati Stuff. <laughs> like S-T-U-F-F? Yes. That's not even good. Quality commentary. <laughs> Stuff. That's not even good. That's hilarious. Thanks. I like it. I've never heard a team called Stuff. I think it's creative. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no. They were maroon and yellow. There's, let's see if there are any players that I would recognize. Now, if they were stuffing, maybe that'd be something impressive. Mm. Uh, it's true. Nothing. There's nobody on the team that I've ever I want jerseys. Of. I want jerseys from these teams. They gotta be like two fifty on Amazon. That's a lot of money. Two dollars and fifty cents. Oh. Yeah. You said two fifty and <laughs> no, I'm like that's I'm a lot of about money. Two dollars and fifty cents. Just like I want all the championships of the losers, you know, all those T shirts and hats. <laughs> Give me those. Game seven, they gotta make them for both teams, you know. Don't they like ship them off to like third world countries? I don't know, but I want one. I found on PrepSportswear.com, Cincinnati Steph, 1999. Prep, prep Sportswear just sent me a message. No, I won't talk to you. What color are their jerseys? Uh, I'm the, the Wikipedia said maroon and yellow, but this is actually, I'm not, it's like a blue, but I'm not super against what's happening here. Like, That's awesome. Yeah, it's like a navy blue with some red. Stuff. And it's Terrible. totally purchasable. <laughs> it's totally purchasable. But that's like apparel. Where are like the jerseys? I, I couldn't yeah. see anything. Oh, well, that's a shooter shirt, but I wonder if that's how the one on the right. Oh, gotcha. Maybe that's what their jerseys look like. It's just like shooter a shooter shirt. Like the NBA basketball. wearing these soccer jerseys these days. I know. <laughs> Weird things be happening. Who wears a soccer jersey? They got some, certain jerseys that, you know, got the sleeves on them and stuff. Oh. Well, they like, look like soccer jerseys. Like ADs kind of. Well, he, like, wears an undershirt, though. Yeah, so no, I'm talking like, about the jerseys. They, they only wear hmm. them every now and then. They're, like, specialty jerseys. I don't know what all the different jerseys are and why they wear them when they wear them, but it's made just to sell. It's interesting jerseys. to me, the peop- like, the players who wear undershirts and the ones who don't. Like, Why? What is interesting about that? Why why do they like why are they wearing an undershirt? Oh. Probably like I mean especially I mean, it's not, with your shoulders. Yeah, and, and it's not like it's a shirt. It's a yeah. it's like a compression workout yeah. thing. Yeah. So probably to keep your muscles tight or the same yeah, the same reason you would wear like, the compression shorts. Like it just helps cuz like the one pair of compression shorts I have when I wear them for or like the compression pants that I wear when I play ultimate sometimes. It, like, feels good. When it's hot, it keeps you cool, and when it's cold, it keeps you hot, mm. and it, like, 
helps the muscles stay together as you're working out. So I can only imagine that that would feel good on like your whole upper body when you're doing as much work as Anthony Davis has to do. That that's I mean I can see why some people would be uncomfortable having that, but I was always somebody that was uncomfortable in just a tank or anything like I don't mm. like wearing those, but I would wear a compression shirt under it if I was playing. I'm not buff enough to wear a compression shirt though. That's not how that works. I found a team picture from the 1999 90s stuff, but they're wearing warm-ups, and there's no, you can't see what the jerseys look like. And that is definitely They don't even have maroon. jerseys. They yeah. played naked. <laughs> That's why they're called the Cincinnati stuff. Oof. <laughs> just take off the warm-ups, and they skins. just be out there. Cincinnati stuff, yo. Skins, skins versus warm-ups. <laughs> Like they it. probably have speedos or boxers or compression boxers. <laughs> Man, so so Micah is a basketball fan, as you can tell by some of his commentary on basketball compared to football and baseball. I am. <laughs> where where what is what does that fandom look like? Who do you like? Yeah. So um, you know, growing up, I was really into all sports. My dad was in sports. I watched them. I played them. Um, in recent years, I haven't been as much because in college I got more into the arts and that just kind of like took over my time is the stuff I was engaging with and the shows and the artists I was keeping up with kind of replaced all of the games I would watch and things like that um, and all the stats for sports. But <clears throat> basketball is the only thing that really stayed to a degree where I feel like I still deserve to call myself a fan. Um, so yeah, kind of football and everything else fell away. I was never into baseball that much, but, um, but yeah, to me, uh, I'm born and raised in Long Beach and my dad grew up in Long Beach and my grandma's lived here for decades and, and my whole family on my dad's side are are huge Laker fans. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was like, yeah, I'm from Southern California. I root for the Lakers, but also a lot of it had to do with that kind of family bonding. Like I I, there's no <laughs> memories I have where my grandmother is more excited than when she's watching the Lakers and angry. She'd be cussing at the TV. <laughs> she like hated Kobe, but like was so, like she would literally cut the game off and turn it back on, like just out oh, of man. anger. She'd like cut it off for like 30 seconds. I ain't watching this. And then she'd come <laughs> back and turn it back on. It was great. But, yeah, so I just remember growing up watching. And I imagine if your grandma has been a Lakers <laughs> fan for a long time, I imagine growing up with like, or watching Showtime and oh, who yeah. Magic was. <laughs> yeah. And then watching how Kobe plays. And those are two very different styles of <laughs> basketball. Yeah, you know, it was would be funny. But, yeah, so I used to watch the games, you know, all the time with, with my family, my, my brothers. And um, my sisters were into it a little bit, but it was really my, my grandmother and my, my dad. And so, yeah, just a lot of memories. And to this day, if you go to my parents' house, like, my dad actually has a Laker shrine in the family room. He has a big old <laughs> Laker beanbag. He has posters. He has bobbleheads. He has trinkets and towels and all kind of stuff. He has, yeah, so it's definitely uh, part of the family. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned, or well, you kind of mentioned not really being a baseball fan, but you did used to play baseball when you were little. I did. Yeah. But that stopped ab- abruptly. <laughs> yeah. So this is the thing about baseball. Two things. Uh, first of all, I I just found it boring to play and to watch. But also, I was terrified of the ball uh, because 
you know, kids can throw fast, like even when they're little. And uh, I was always afraid. So I'd be at bat and I would just be like hoping I get walked or whatever. But I was always afraid a ball was going to hit me. Um, so I never liked hitting. Um, I don't remember if I was good or not. Probably not. But um, I was just scared, even if I did make the hit. Um, but my baseball career came to an abrupt halt. And I was very thankful because my parents finally let me stop playing. Because um, if I got on the bases, I was I was quick. I could steal a lot of bases, and I did steal a lot of bases. But one time I was stealing home, and uh, they were trying to, you know, throw the ball, get me out, throw it to the catcher. Um, but they hit me in the head, um, and it like knocked my helmet off. And I just remember waking up. And they were doing the whole, how many fingers are you holding up type thing, right? So I had blacked out, got a concussion, and I had to go to the hospital. And it was the most frustrating thing because I was so sleepy. And they're like, do not fall asleep. You know, you can go into a coma. My mom was tripping. Don't fall asleep, Michael. I'm so tired. Anyways, so, yeah, after that, after being hospitalized for a couple days and stuff like that, then uh, my parents were like, all right, I guess you don't have to play baseball anymore. I was like – this was a blessing in disguise because I hate baseball. Because you were like eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something yeah. out there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the end of my baseball career. But, yeah, I was super into football, and I played football longer. I played football all the way up until high. So I played basketball, football, soccer, um, and baseball. I quit baseball first. I was never really good at basketball, but I liked it. But I, I think I stopped playing that, like, somewhere around middle school as far as like on teams soccer was my best sport in the beginning it actually have a really funny story about soccer so i played in lbyso and i was not really challenged at all um i remember in second grade i was the leading scorer in the league and i i scored 22 goals uh one season i was left-footed i'm left-handed as well i'm left everything um and so it just made it harder for people to know how to whatever guard me and stuff so i played for a while but then when i got to middle school it was i was just killing it i was just like i'm really good in my head you know thinking i'm like the you know next pele or something um and at one point along the way you played with cody's brother devin yeah (laughs) although you don't remember that and devin doesn't remember (laughs) that not at all (laughs) (laughs) i don't think your dad remembers but (laughs) cody's dad chuck remembers he's the only one and everyone's like, all right, if you say so, Chuck, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I don't remember exactly what grade, but it was somewhere, I think, around late middle school, um, like maybe eighth grade, uh, that I was on this team in LBYSO, and there was these two brothers. They were twins, and their dad, they were really good, too. We were on the same team. And their dad was like, hey, you know, he went to my dad. He's like, Micah is not really being challenged. You know, he has a lot of talent. Um, I actually found this league on the west side of Long Beach, and the like. It's just a stronger league. The talent is much better over there. He'll grow as a you know as a player. And my dad was like, "Okay, cool." So we went from LBYSO <laughs> to I don't even remember the name of the league, but if you're familiar with Long Beach, the west side is predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. Um, and it was like kind of over by Silverado Park or whatever on the other side of 710. I was the only player in the whole league who wasn't Latino. Uh, <laughs> the name of my team was Miguel Hildalgo, <laughs> which was a Mexican revolutionary. <laughs> and our coach 
gave us halftime lectures in Spanish, and then he had to give me one-on-one lectures in English because I don't speak Spanish. Um, and I went from being one of the best players in the league to hands down one of the worst. <laughs> These dudes were so good. It was terrible. I was like, oh, I am not good. I am not good at all. <laughs> I'm only good playing these other folks who don't know nothing about soccer, <laughs> but it was funny. Yeah, so that was uh, – I, I did play in high school, but, yeah. again, I wasn't very good in high school. I just played for the PE credit, so I didn't have to, like, you know, take PE class. What so, high school did you go to? I went to Poly, yeah. So, yeah, that was that was, that was my soccer career. <laughs> oh, man. So yeah, Michael was a very fast, talented athlete. Um, you would have kept playing sports to some degree. Like, why did you stop playing soccer? Yeah, I mean, so at the time, yeah, I ended up. Um, the The reason why I quit the soccer team actually was because I got the job at Albertsons. Yeah. Um. So I was in high school, and I well, first of all, I play, I also played football all the way up until high school, and it was like. I was playing Pop Warner, um, and it was like the summer before freshman year, and I was thinking about trying out for Polly's team, but I was <laughs> I was 98 pounds my freshman year of high school, <laughs> and uh, the thing is, you know, Pop Warner, they have like weight limits and stuff like that, so you're always playing guys who are around your age and around your weight as well, but once you get to that high school level, things change. <laughs> And, you know, like, even, you know, especially at the school I went to, they have a really good football program, and kids come to there to play football, and we got a whole lot of Polynesian Samoan cats, all this stuff. So suddenly, I'm like 98 pounds, and this wasn't even the poly team, but I was just on my Pop Warner. We're closer to high school now, and I was just getting tore up left and right. When when I had, like, the weight limit thing, like, okay, the heaviest guy is only 20 pounds more than me, I was cool. But, uh, yeah, once you hit that these is little grown men. Uh, yeah, I got messed up. I didn't survive uh, Hell Week, and I got a concussion. And, uh, yeah, that was the end of my football career, my freshman year of high school, the summer before my freshman year. But I continued to play soccer, and I stopped because I enjoyed it. I do enjoy sports, but I got this part-time job, and we had practice basically at the same time that I was supposed to work. So it was like, do I want to make some money? Um, or at this time I had been – you know, humbled by the West Side Soccer League. <laughs> I no longer thought I was going to play professional or play. So I was like, well, the likelihood of me, like, playing in college or getting a scholarship are slim to none. Um, and I want to make this money. And so, yeah, I quit playing soccer so I could work after school. So I'd leave school, take the bus straight to Albertsons, and be a bag boy. And that's where I met Jacob. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the end of my sport in the kind of like organized sports. I still was into athletics. Um, I started lifting weights a lot because I didn't want to be 98 pounds, you know. Um, and I still do a lot of weightlifting. Uh, but that was kind of the end of like organized sports. But even the other thing, I ended up getting sick in college and have a lot of issues with my health. And so I'm like, you know, I probably couldn't have continued to play anyway because I started to have all kind of dislocations with my joints. And I've had shoulder mm-hmm. surgery on both my shoulders and stuff now. So it was kind of cool, the timing of it, because like right when my health started to deteriorate, that was around the same time where I started taking my art more seriously. So those those passions kind of swapped out. And so I was like, all right, I can't really do or play sports that much anymore. Um, but now I have this whole new kind of outlet that I love. I'm trying to look up um, 
players that to give people a sense, Long Beach Poly is one of the most successful high schools in the country in terms of producing mostly football players, but there have been a lot of other athletes that have come out of Poly. Yeah, a few baseball players too. Yeah. Um, but I can't uh, – during your time – I was trying to look up 2006 and 2000. Well, I went to school with Deshaun Jackson. Yeah. So oh, Dope. Yeah, yeah, he was, like, really good friends with my older sister. He was just one grade above me, and he was in my sister's grade. Um, so, yeah, like, I went to school with him. Um, also, Winston – I forgot his last name. Just cause Churchill. I, no. Oh, gosh. <laughs> he said Churchill. <laughs> um, oh, man. His first name is Winston? His first name is Winston, or maybe it's his last name, but um, he's a little older than me. He went to school with my older Winston brother. Winston Justice? Is that yes. Yeah. Um, so he, we've been friends since we were little, our families, because we used to play at Cherry Park uh, over in North Long Beach. And uh, But, yeah, he's another one who went to the NFL and was, yeah. like, really good buddies he with my older played brother. played for USC and was drafted by the Eagles and had a pretty good pro career. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I knew all those cats growing up. Um, or they, I'm one of six kids, so a lot of the, and and all of my family played sports. So like my sister ran track, and uh, they did a lot of like workouts, both running and weightlifting. The football team d- would do stuff with the track team and stuff like that. And so uh, yeah, so it's it's been it's been cool like seeing people you grew up with and went to high school with like have professional success when it comes to sports, both in like leagues and then also like the Olympics and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Poly high, baby. Scholars and champions. <laughs> it's cool, but I hate it. <laughs> Every time somebody brings a poly, I'm like, scholars and champions. <laughs> um, so with, let me go back to, to watching sports and being a Lakers fan. Um, what are some of your, like, A, who's your favorite player that you've ever, like, watched, Lakers and otherwise? Um, and what are your, like, favorite memories of watching pro basketball? Yeah, you know, I was a huge fan of both uh, Robert Ory and Derek Fisher hmm. because they were hmm. so dependable, and it was kind of the same thing. Like, they didn't play a lot. I mean, sometimes uh, sometimes they did, but for the Lakers, especially towards the end, you know, it was like they were they were coming off the bench, but it was like, Man, these dudes would come and play just for the last four minutes and hit four th- three-point shots and win the game. Or hit one three-point shot at the end of the thing. And you're just like, oh, snap, the shooters is coming in, boy. <laughs> you know? Because, like, you like – like, I mean, I rooted for Kobe because he played on my team. But he got on my nerves, too, because he was a frustrating player. He was so talented. But, you know, I think his mentality, if he would have been different – I think the Lakers could have had even more success than they had. They could have won more championships if him and Shaq could have got along. There was a lot of ego going, right? You're like, well, no one's denying your talent, but you kind of get on my nerves. But the thing I liked about um, Ori and Fisher is that they were just stand-up dudes. They just, like, they had integrity, and they were super talented, and they came in when it mattered, and they showed up. You know, it was like they weren't intimidated to take the last shot. They were just – and it was just sinking it. And I just – so many memories, not even just in the playoffs, but even just, like, during the season, you know, just regular games where it's just like, oh, no, Fisher drained another one, or he drained another last-minute three-pointer, and you're just like, it's the most exciting thing in the world. So those those kind of buzzer beaters, especially when it was from, you know, these role players coming off the bench that it's like, I scored six points all game, but they're the ones that mattered the most, you know? <laughs> like, that's so cool. <laughs> so, yeah, I love that. 
What's your what's your singular like favorite moment? Um, point two, <laughs> right? Remember that? Or was point three? Oh. Point four, because oh, yeah, that, that, that's go. a rule that there has to be. It's either at least point three or point four seconds for it to be a catch and shoot. Otherwise, it just has to be a tip. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Whatever it was that moment, because it was just like he had less than freaking half a second left. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that mug was amazing. Oh. Derek Fisher against yeah. the Spurs. It took me a second. Two thousand one. I don't know if it was that long ago. Yeah. But yeah, that was a crazy moment. Yeah. Uh, but my favorite, like, I'm still, I'm still kind of sad about it. Um, but it's still the most successful playoff run. But when the Lakers played uh, the Sixers in the finals. They had swept every single team up until then. Yeah. And then they lost one game, and then they won four in a row. Yeah. And I was so annoyed because I was like, what? This could have been history, like a perfect you know, a perfect record in the playoffs, in the postseason. That would have been amazing. I mean, it's still amazing, and I still yeah. think no one's going to beat it. Like, I mean, it's possible, but I, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon if, if it ever happens. Um, but it's like – that was one of the most exciting playoff runs because you're just like, nobody can beat us. And then, yeah, it was super deflating. And then Nick Kimber went tumble, no, no, no. <laughs> he was just like taunting. And you know what? To be beat by anybody, I'm I'm glad we got beat by Allen Iverson. You know, like I I like I like Iverson. Like he's crazy guy issues in a lot of ways, but like you know, I like watching him play. I'm like, all right, whatever. And we still won four in a row after that. So. But uh, yeah, that was that was an exciting series, especially before they lost. When you just like, wait, they swept another one and another one. We about to sweep the whole playoffs. Not quite. If only. If only. Because we swept the Spurs. Or no, in the first round it was the Trailblazers 3-0, then the Kings 4-0, then the Spurs 4-0. Yeah. And then that first <laughs> first game against the Sixers, man. The step over game. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the step over happened in that game. Oh man, that Iver- makes it even. <laughs> Iverson had 48 points in that game. That's crazy. Iverson balled out that series. <laughs> yeah. He had he had 48 in game one. I don't know how many he had in game two, and then 35, 35, 37. Yeah, that's what I'm like. You know what? Respect. If somebody's gonna beat us, I'm glad it was him. Yeah. Uh, but we still got the ring though. Shaq averaged 33 and 16 with five assists and three and a half That's blocks. Crazy. That's crazy. 33 and 16 with five assists and three and a half blocks. Shaq was a monster. Shaq was a monster. Iverson averaged 35. Iverson only didn't play like two minutes that whole series. That's crazy. He averaged 47.8 minutes per game. Also, I was shocked when. Allen Iverson looks like a midget in the NBA, and this fool is six feet tall. I'm like, when I found that out, I was like, Allen Iverson is a six-footer? I was like, oh, my gosh, these dudes are giants. Because <laughs> he straight up looked like somebody's little brother. You know what I'm saying? Like he Isaiah looked, Thomas. He looks so short out there. He is not short. <laughs> he changed the game. Like, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of Iverson, but, like, there are only – you can name on your – on one or two hands, how many people have changed how the sport has either been played or how it looked. Like, in, because with, like, Dr. J changed it one mm-hmm. way, and then 
Jordan like escalated that even more, but then Jordan changed the style of it too. And Jordan made long shorts a thing and Jordan made being bald a thing. Like those weren't things that were happening. Yeah. And then Iverson comes along and has a, another very different look too. But then the way he played, like the crossover, nobody cared about, that wasn't a thing yeah. before Iverson, like where it is a huge thing now breaking yeah. people's ankles and stuff. That entire culture started yeah. with Allen Iverson. The idea of like just street ball type play, yeah, and little dudes going to the rim and finishing, yeah, like relatively little. Okay. I, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. He's at, little in the NBA. He is <laughs> at six foot, one hundred sixty-five pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he would go into the lane and attack seven one three hundred twenty-pound Shaq. Did you say one hundred sixty-five? One hundred sixty-five pounds. Six foot one sixty-five. Are you serious? That's what it says. So that's like probably average playing size. What the heck? I weigh 190. <laughs> How can you be sick, that much taller than me and that much skinnier? I'm like, that's crazy. Oh, he was little. <laughs> and he would attack the basket. Yeah, he would go crazy. up against these dudes and be like, F you, I'm scoring. Good luck stopping me. And that was something that that was not what you did no. at that size. People didn't do that. No. And he did. And so there's there's I have a ton of respect for him. Yeah, and he was just – entertaining to watch because he was so quick and you know had handles across people over it was like you know even if other people were good or like slam dunking or whatever like alan iverson was out there just doing stuff you did not see and you were like what <laughs> like yeah he's seventh all time in points per game average dang so that's that's impressive yep he's great but yeah well, there you go. Some basketball history. Recent history, I suppose. Um, well, we can move on from the sports realm. And you have mentioned your family in bits and spurts through the start of this. But give us a sense of who your parents are, what they do, who your siblings are, what they do. Yeah, I, I come from a big family. So there's uh, six kids. Uh, um, there's three boys and three girls. I'm the fourth. Um, but yeah, my dad was was raised in Long Beach. My mom's from Ohio. Uh, my I did da- not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My what, what part of Ohio? Youngstown. Okay. Yeah, north. My family still lives there. My grandpa lives there. Because you have a lot of family there. in Louisiana, though, too, right? No, Mississippi. Oh, Mississippi. So my dad's side okay. of the family is from Mississippi, but I don't have that much family there anymore. Because my grandma is one of eleven. Oh my. Yeah. And they're all from Prentice, Mississippi, but they kind of all moved out to Long Beach around the same time Uh, because they were trying to get rid of or get away from the prejudice in the South. Mm. And so my grandma had moved briefly to Detroit, and my dad was born in Detroit, but Mm. then the family decided to move out to Long Beach. So, yeah, a gang of them came from Mississippi, and they all moved into the same neighborhood on the same block, uh, right over kind of like on the traditional east side of long beach over by king park it's right like right near poly high school actually um and yeah they moved into like houses on the same block so my dad grew up like with all of his cousins and stuff just living a few doors down and all of his aunties yeah it was pretty cool so um but yeah so and then my mom was from youngstown she was born and raised out there um and she moved to long beach when she was like 20 something and they met at church at Grace Brother in Long Beach over in Bixby Knowles. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's where my parents met. Did she just move on her own pursuing something? Or? No, so her grandmother 
had moved out here and she was living out here. So she, originally she came to visit her grandma for like an extended vacation, like she was going to stay for a month. And her grandma loved having her out here so much. She said, hey, you should, you know, you should think about staying. So my mom was like, all right, well, I'll apply to one job. And if I get it, I'll stay. And she got it. So she was a registered nurse. So she worked at Long Beach Memorial. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. What, what wing? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <Does> <laughs> oh, no, this was years or? ago. No, she doesn't anymore. But that's what, like, at the time. Um, so, yeah. And it was interesting, though, because she met my dad through church. But my grandma, my father's mother, was also a nurse. And so they knew each other from the hospital. Oh, that's funny. But then she met my dad at church. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, my dad is a pro... Well, he's retired now. He just retired this year, actually. But he was a probation officer most of my life. Um, and then my mom, she stopped working once she started having kids. And then she went back to work after my youngest sister was full-time in school. So now she's been a librarian for quite a while at an elementary school. Yeah. So it's been pretty cool. But, yeah, I love being from a big family. And we're – the kids are <laughs> – it's interesting how you can grow up in the same house, but just, you know, you grow into your own person. And we're all into, like, there's definitely the language that we've built as a family to where, like, things we have in common, ways we communicate and vocabulary and all this stuff where you're like, yeah, you're definitely a Borne. But we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't be more different in so many ways. It's kind of funny. Um, like, we, we're kind of split uh, for our family, we we have with, within the kids is like we have the liberals and the conservatives. I'm definitely on the liberal side of things, <laughs> uh, but it's all relative, you know. But yeah. um, it's pretty funny, uh, cause yeah, my oldest sister she uh, is a school teacher. Then my brother after her, he's a lawyer. Um, and then my sister, my other older sister, is an athlete. She ran track in college. And now she's actually the cross-country coach for the girls at Poly High. Mm -hmm. um, and then I do music and poetry. Then my younger brother is a police officer. And then my younger sister is into, like, psychology. She wants to study to be a therapist. Um, she already did her undergrad, but she has more schooling to go to. But she works in that field part-time now. Um, yeah, so it's kind of... It's, it's, we're all over the place, you know, like I said, teachers, police officers, and yeah, athletes and artists, and yeah, we're we're very different <laughs> as far as life paths, so it's pretty cool. It's fun. Where's your brother a uh, cop at? In Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara. Yeah. yeah. So what was it like growing up in such a busy household? That's the thing, you know, I... um. <clears throat> Your your life is just normal to you. <laughs> so I didn't think – like it doesn't feel – it didn't feel busy. It didn't seem like a lot of people. Like especially – so we moved like halfway through my childhood just to a different part of Long Beach. But uh, the first half of my childhood, I lived in North Long Beach, and there was just five of us at the time. It was before my youngest sister was born. But it was seven people in a two-bedroom house. So my parents had their own room, and then all five of us <laughs> shared the other room. We just didn't think anything about it. It was yeah. just like, that's just how life was. We weren't like, oh, we're poor. I mean, we were, but we didn't know that. We was kids, you know? Yeah. Um, we didn't think about it. It was like, it was fun. We built the most 
massive sheet and blanket tents you could think <laughs> of. These things were mansions. You know what I'm saying? We had like two pairs of bunk beds in the room and we just like elaborate. Like these things had seven rooms. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, but it was dope. It was like that was just my life. Um, and so it didn't feel busy or cramped or – and even once we moved, I mean, we only moved to a three-bedroom house, and there's eight of us now. My little sister was born. So it was like the three boys in one room and the three girls in the other. So I was just – you know, and the rooms were not big. Um, so, yeah, I always shared a room with my brothers and always did everything together. Never went to school by myself because I had one sister who was just one year older than me. And then I had a brother who was a couple years younger than me. So at any given point, you know, at my freshman year at Poly, it was like my sister was a grade older than me. And then my older brother was a senior. So and then eventually my sister was there and then my younger brother came. And so it was just like, yeah, I don't know. That's just how life was. And and I quite enjoyed it to this day. Like, I don't I don't like I would never live alone. I don't care if I had all the money in the world. Like, obviously, I save money having roommates, but I like having roommates. You know, it's like. I I don't like living in a house where it's just me. So, and I mean, sometimes I'll even have a roommate in my room over the years. Jacob knows I have bunk beds. So, me and Jacob yep. used to be roommates and we had different people stay with us. Uh, my buddy Todd and then uh, my cousin stayed with us and you know, like it doesn't bother me having someone in the room actually. I like it. So, <laughs> yeah. So, while you were in school, what would you say were your, like, strengths? What were the things that you got the most out of school? What were your, like, weaknesses? What were the biggest struggles through school for you? Yeah, school was uh, – are you talking about college or elementary? High school stuff. Oh, high school stuff. Like, middle okay. middle and high school, like, that progression. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it was it was interesting because I – so, my parents were very intentional about wanting to get us the best education we could and – trying to get us into good schools and things like that. Um, so, again, I lived in North Long Beach for elementary school and went to church over in North Long Beach, really diverse community. Um, but at the time, my parents had us tested so we could go to this school on the other side of Long Beach, the school called Mini Gant. It was a really good elementary school. Um, and I always struggled in school. Um, but I was like – I was – you know, they have the gifted programs, right? I was smart enough to get in, but not smart enough to thrive. <laughs> and so it was like I was at the bottom of the class of mm-hmm. the advanced class. And so I hated it. Yeah. I hated school because I always felt like I don't even want to be here. You know, like I would much rather be in the classes where work wasn't as hard. And also um, at a young age, like I, I noticed right away, like most of the time, I was the only black boy in the class because um, it was this school on the other side of town and it was the advanced program. And, like, kids of all colors are smart, but for a lot of reasons, you know, kids who grew up with more support or whatever, you know, they do better in school. And so here I am, and it was like, you know, we would call the people who are not in the gifted programs like, oh, that's the slow class, right? <laughs> that's what we call it. But I'm looking and I'm like, well, the slow class is where all the black and brown kids are. Yeah. And I, I want to be in a slow class. You know what I'm saying? Um, being the only black kid in the class or one of two of us. Some years there was one other girl. There was a girl named Whitney and stuff like that. Um, but it was very noticeable to me from an early age. Um, and so even all the way as uh, as soon as elementary school, I felt like this burden because I was embarrassed. I was like, first of all, I'm one of very few black kids mm-hmm. in this program. And 
also I'm stupid. Like that's how I felt. Even though I was in the advanced class, I'm struggling. I'm getting bad grades. Um, and, and so I, I really, I grew up hating school and I was in like advanced courses in elementary school and middle school as well. And then when I got to high school, things changed. I didn't like Polly has this program called pace that I didn't even apply for because I didn't want to get in. Oh, I wouldn't have applied to pace. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, and my parents didn't make me apply. And uh, I don't think I would have got in either way. But so then once I got to high school, uh, I was in a program that was a lot more diverse and, and that felt a lot better, but still it was like in middle school, it was more diverse than my elementary school as far as the school itself. But again, I was still in the advanced courses. I was in tap in middle school and it was the same deal. Like, I'm the only person in my family to ever fail a class. Like I straight up failed algebra. Um, And I tell people, you know, there's kids who slack off or whatever. And I was like, that wasn't me. Like I was a good kid who got bad grades. Like my parents were very strict. I showed up to class. I did all my homework. Um, I just didn't get it. And things that you're supposed to be good at to be considered smart, I wasn't good at. All the stereotypical, like, oh, smart kids are good at math and science and all those things. Those were the things that was hardest for me. Reading. I read very slow. If if I read faster, I wouldn't comprehend it. But I would read so slow, I often wouldn't finish the reading in time. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you got to finish this novel to be the test. So it was like I would read half the novel and, you know, I do okay on the test, but I couldn't answer, like, the last third of the questions or something. So it was just – I genuinely – it's so funny now because, like, now – when people often meet me or they hear me talk or do a presentation, they're like, oh, man, you're so smart. And it's not that I like, I'm like, oh, I'm stupid, but it was hard for me to believe that for a long time because I, that wasn't my experience in school. I never felt mm-hmm. smart. I was always at the back of the class as far as performance-wise, um, and it was it always felt like a chore. Um, I didn't really understand the ways in which I was gifted or intelligent until I started engaging my creativity, and that wasn't until college. Um, during my college years is when I started first writing hip hop my freshman year. And then my third year of school, I started writing spoken word poetry. And that's when so many things came alive for me. So many things that I had been interested in my whole life, but had never really been encouraged. I love hip hop my whole life, but nobody told me that my love for hip hop was actually an interest in something creative and productive and it was just like, if anything, it was looked down upon because hip hop was seen as bad. And especially coming out of Long Beach, the most famous and popular rappers were all, you know, gangster rappers and stuff like that. So I loved all this music that I wasn't supposed to like. I was a church kid. It was talking about bad things. Um, and so I didn't associate my interest in hip hop as an interest in uh, creative expression and something productive that could pay my bills one day, that could do good in the world. Um, and so it was crazy because I genuinely thought I was stupid. And then I start writing rap songs and poetry and sharing them. And folks were like, whoa, dude, like, you got a lot to say, man. You're, you're talented. You're smart. And I was like, what? Because even when I was doing that, it had nothing to do with school. I didn't, like, start rapping because of the school I went to. It's just during my college years is I met some folks and got into it. But it was always outside of school. I'm going to open mics in the city of Chicago. I'm doing other stuff. So, yeah, it, it's, it, it was a crazy shift because the first – Basically, 20 years of my life, I thought I was dumb, you know, and now I get invited to colleges on a regular, but like because of poetry and music and the teach creative creative writing. But that's why it formed in me this really big passion, um, because I think so many people, not just when it comes to like music or poetry, I think so many people are struggling to fit into 
the machine, the system of how we usually measure intelligence, and they think they're dumb when they're not. They're creative, and they just haven't discovered uh, the way their intelligence expresses itself creatively. And unfortunately, as a culture, when it comes to education, we don't really value creativity that much. We think it's a good thing, but not a necessary thing. You know, whenever there's budget cuts, the first programs to get cut are always the creative ones. Well, mm -hmm. we don't really need a band that bad. We don't really need a art teacher that bad. We don't really need a dance program that bad. And so all the creative stuff is seen as not essential. What really matters is the core of reading, math, and science. And I just think that's, that's wrong. I think creativity is core to every discipline. I think the best mathematician is good at math because they approach math creatively. They look at a problem that everyone else looks at and says, uh, there's no answer. And then the mathematician says, actually, I can think of three or four different possible backdoors. I can think of creative approaches to solve this problem. And then they solve it um, eventually. And so I think creativity should really be centered um, and Everything grows out of it, no matter what it is. If you're talking about passion, if you're talking, or excuse me, fashion, if you're talking about, um, if you're talking about, you know, poetry, if you're talking about math or business, you know, the best business person is the person who creatively approaches selling their product and tells the story in a way that's more compelling and creative than other people. That's why they're good at it. So anyway, it's a, it's a really big thing for me. I do a lot of creative writing workshops, but the emphasis to me is not creative writing. It's creativity. It's I think humans miss out so much uh, when we fail to engage our creativity because for me, it didn't just help me realize my intellect, but also spiritual growth. There's so many things about my life as a person of faith and a Christian that I think can only, under be, can only be understood when you're engaging your creativity. Um, if you're coming from a Christian worldview, literally the first thing we know about God in the Bible, in the beginning, God created like that's 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 the first that's the base of wow God is a creative being and we being made in the image of God possess creativity and when we engage that we start to understand God more and understand the mystery of the the gospel and the story of Jesus and um yeah and Jesus communicated through creativity through short stories through parables all the time literally using um, story and metaphor to explain who he was and the purpose of life and, you know, saying things like, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, the life, you know. Uh, these are literally, they're poetic devices, they're metaphors mm. to explain important spiritual truths. Um, so understanding poetry, understanding the stories, you know, Jesus was trying to illustrate really important spiritual lessons and he goes, oh, let me tell you a story. We call them parables. They were stories. They were short stories that he would make up <laughs> to illustrate deep spiritual truths. It was an important part. Creativity was an important part of spiritual understanding. So my life as a person of faith grew way more when I started engaging creativity more as well. Yeah. So, yeah. I go on a lot of rants. <laughs> <laughs> it, went, it went multiple directions, yeah. which, and then it just makes me think of multiple things because I've been on – I've been reading um, Malcolm Gladwell, uh -huh. and so two major points you hit on are two major topics in his book, David versus Goliath. Oh, cool. And the premise of David versus Goliath is we look at the story of David and Goliath and see one person who has all of the advantages and one person who has all of the disadvantages, and by some miracle, 
the disadvantaged person comes out victorious. Mm -hmm. And that's based on us thinking that Goliath being bigger and stronger and confident and armored up and all these things, that he has all of the advantages and that David being smaller, weighing less, having less experience, having no armor, no shield, no anything, that all of those things puts him at a distinct disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And so because David is so outmatched, it takes this great miracle to overcome Goliath. Mm -hmm. When, in fact, the situation is one-on-one combat. Mm -hmm. And so if it would have been a one-on-one close quarters (coughs) fist fight, yes, David would have been very outmatched. But in a situation where David is approaching from hundreds of yards away and he's not face-to-face within arm's reach of Goliath, David is, because he's not wearing any armor and any of that stuff, he's very mobile. Because he has this sling that he has spent his entire life practicing and using, Goliath, based on the situation, is actually the one with the disadvantage. <laughs> Big, slow, heavy armor. <laughs> yeah. Because he is yeah. only going to be very successful in a very certain situation. Yeah. Every other situation, David is clearly the one with the advantage, but we don't always look at it that way. Mm-hmm. And so that's the premise of the book, is how many situations do we have in life where we see things and go, this is a clear advantage, this is a clear disadvantage, and now things occur this way, whereas if we looked at it a different way, we would see it's not quite so. Yeah. And so a couple of things you brought up specifically, like, being in the gifted class, but being the worst, being one of the worst ones in the gifted class. Yeah. yeah, your station maybe is higher, but because you weren't prepared for it or ready for it or whatever, you were not put in a position to succeed. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, that negatively affected who you were in terms of confidence and performance. Whereas if you would have been in the other classes, like you said, you probably would have been one of the higher ones in that class. And that would have totally reshaped mm-hmm. how you thought of yourself and the confidence you had and, you know, your performance overall in general. And so he, in a much more eloquent, well-spoken way, kind of looks at the idea of, like, affirmative action mm-hmm. and, like, is that, I mean, that could be its own whole big conversation, but, like, just because you're giving the spot, you're giving this opportunity but for some of those people who aren't prepared in that situation, it's actually doing them a disservice where they would be better off in a position to succeed at a high level without having to be in the best program in the world. And like he just brings that up briefly, but he uses an example of a, another woman who, who was the best in her class and she applied to, like I forget, Princeton or Brown or Columbia or something, and she gets in but she finds herself very overmatched there. Whereas if she would have gone to not an Ivy League school, she would have been a top student, and she would have gone on to a career in the field she was studying. But because she was at one of the best schools in the world, and she was at the bottom of the class, now she feels like, well, she isn't as smart in this topic, and what, she's not going to continue to study this because apparently she doesn't know enough. So she gives up that career because she feels like she's not good enough. And so, like, okay, there's an advantage to being in the best situation. But if the best situation isn't suited for you, then it's not the best situation. That's a – the advantage of being in 
the best program is horribly outweighed by putting yourself at a disadvantage and measuring yourself against all these other people. Whereas if you were in a different situation, the advantage of the confidence and the success and the performance in a lesser situation is so much more valuable. Honestly, even even if you could hang intellectually and your grades were not struggling, uh, just the outsiderness of it is difficult Um, because – you know, I, I went to uh, school. It was in the middle of downtown Chicago, but it was still severely, like, disproportionate when it came to race. I, I show up my freshman year. I'm in a dorm. There was 30 guys on each floor. I was on the sixth floor. And it was me, one Asian, and 28 white guys. And that was hard. Mm-hmm. And I know there's colleges that are more, um, you know, diverse than that, obviously. But there's a lot of – for a lot of people of color – um, that is their experience with college, where you're going, you leave your community, and then you're you're told, well, you have to go to college to succeed. And then you find yourself in a situation where, like, man, you look around, nobody looks like you, and that's uncomfortable. And you're having to navigate. You're not just there going to school anymore. You're having to learn a completely different culture. You're having to deal with all those insecurities, which everybody can have. Even smart kids have insecurities, right? There's kids who are getting straight A's, but they're they're at 96% in the class instead of 100%, you know, and yeah. they're stressed out because they're like, I want a perfect 4.0, and if I even get an A-, minus, it's not good enough, you know? And um, so it's like everyone has insecurities when it comes to education, but then to also – be having to navigate constantly being an outsider and feeling like an outsider um, is it's a very difficult thing to do, which I don't actually think is it's not something that everyone can handle or should do. Um, I think particularly when it comes to minorities, it's it's unfortunate because obviously you want to do better and you want to as an individual um, but also as a community, right? You want to help your people and help us rise. And yeah, more of us getting educated and having better opportunities in life can lift the whole community in theory. But in practice, what often happens is the gifted ones are plucked out of their community. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, now you're you're removing that child from the community that helped it grow and helped it find yeah. themselves. And then... Um, in order to be competitive in this new quote unquote privileged environment that they should be grateful to be in um, and see it as an honor, um, but they don't fit often culturally. And so then they have to either learn how to code switch and navigate these two worlds and be like here and here and back and forth, or just for ease's sake, often, uh, students assimilate and not just students it goes beyond schooling in the professional world when you're the only person of color at your business or on the board or in the office again you you end up like assimilating in order to excel and to be accepted um but no matter how much you assimilate you'll still be a certain amount of other um but also in that assimilation process even if your heart is still proud to be who you are and your heart is with your people um you find yourself being distanced from them in your experience, in, and it's it's a hard. That's something that I'm sh- currently struggling with, um, because right now, like as an artist, because of where I went to school and where I interned after that, um, I 
I spend a lot of time talking about racial stuff in my art, but a lot of the consumers of my art, a lot of my fans and followers, came from the community I was in. So my college, and then I interned at a predominantly white church for two years after college. And and I, I'm grateful for those relationships and those conversations, but a lot of the invitations I would get is to predominantly white schools and communities and things like that. And so I'm constantly you know, on behalf of black folks and people of color facilitating these conversations, but I'm no longer in regular community with the black community uh, for four years of college and two years after that, right? And so now um, I'm working on an album right now that is specifically talking to black boys. I'm basically talking to high school version of me. It's about masculinity, and I'm trying to think about who I was and how I was influenced by hip-hop and what that kid needed to hear and have a conversation with him. And uh, it's so funny because I started, in order to want to connect with that community more and see where black teenage boys in Long Beach are right now and what they're thinking and how they're living, I started going to like hip-hop open mics. I've been doing a lot of stuff in the poetry world. But the other week, I I went to two different hip-hop open mics, and it it was hard. It was hard being there and realizing how distant I am from a lot of aspects of the culture. There's some things I still understand, but I'm like, man, I haven't really been spending my time around what is kind of most like native to me in that sense. Um, And it was just this weird process of like, man, in this desire to succeed and continuing to learn and talk the lingo and assimilate to rise up. And I look around and, and I'm alone, culturally speaking. Not to say I don't have any friends who are like genuine friends of mine in those aspects, but you know, when I look at like what's the issues in America and how I want to see things change, I'm like, I don't actually think this is the best way to bring about change for oppressed communities and people of color to just constantly be stripping those communities of their most talented people and teach them the ways of whiteness and be like, that's going to help your people. No, that's not not actually like you said, maybe going to a school which might be less prestigious, but you're you're mingling with and building relationships and networks with other uh, business people and artists of color and then and then building businesses and communities and and really building up and engaging, of course, people of all backgrounds, white folks included. But that assimilation process, I think, has done so much harm. Um, and I don't think it's intentional, but that's just what happens. And people do think like, of course, take that opportunity. You should go to an Ivy League school if you get in. And then you go and your confidence gets crushed and you got four years of feeling like you don't belong and you're trying to be who you – someone you're not just so people will accept you. Or you say, forget this, and you drop out of school and you walk away from it. It's like, bro, you should have went to Long Beach City College. You know what I'm saying? Like, straight up. Like, you would have fell at home. You could have transferred those credits somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? And you would have, like – you'd have been better off yeah. because at the end of the day, people don't really care if you went to Yale. Can you do the job? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? If you have a degree, whether it's from Cal State, Fullerton, or you know somewhere nobody ever heard of, it's just, if it's an accredited university, you got your degree, and you're a good candidate, that's what's going to matter more than where you went to school. Um, even if you get the job because you went to Harvard, if you're not performing, you're not going to keep the job, right? So I think a lot of it, the idea of, of it is unnecessary anyway. It's not really helpful that much, and those schools are often more expensive. So you're going into greater debt for this lie that 
this is a far superior education, um, and it's not really going to help you that much more, I think. Anyways, I have a lot of rants <laughs> about education. There is so a book. Don't go to an Ivy League school. Um, <laughs> I'm not if saying it, that. If it's not suited to your <laughs> yeah. strengths and going to provide what you need. Exactly, because for some people, you know, they can navigate that with no problem. And and again, that's not just for people of color. There's white folks who, you know, everyone's just told that going to an Ivy League is inherently better because they're better objectively better schools and it's just not true (laughs) it's just not true you know that might not be the right move there's a culture there there's a thing that just might not be suit for how you're built like jacob's saying so my my basketball shorts and sandals would not have fit in very well at yale i'm just gonna (laughs) throw that out there yeah so um i feel like i'd be the funniest person at yale (laughs) (laughs) I, i can't corroborate that or deny it i've never been to yale I don't think I don't know if I know anyone who's ever attended Yale or Harvard. I know someone who went to Harvard. I know I don't someone, know anybody who went to Yale. I know someone who went to Stanford and Princeton. I know somebody who went to Cornell and that's about it. The only and the one only person experience that right the only experience from Cornell is uh Andy, Andy. from the office. Yeah. How'd you know? <laughs> I know exactly what you were about to say. <laughs> Are you a big office fan? I am. Good. <laughs> well, that makes two of us. <laughs> two of you. Um, I think you just talked to your split personality. No, I was saying, like, out of the of three us. of us, two of us are <laughs> yeah. office fans. That's what I was going for. It was a nice way of saying he doesn't like the office. <laughs> I hear it a lot. <laughs> um, my only other observation, too, from that and from the same book is Gladwell also goes into a lot about dyslexia and dyslexia just as one example of people who either on the spectrum of like suffering from a diagnosed learning disability to people who are just who just struggle in school in general Mm -hmm. um maybe like in kind of related to ways that you did that some of those people who were the academic like the things that you were talking about just like being able to read easily and Mm -hmm. quickly and understand that right away or being able to do math really quick people who struggle at that it does build their creativity. It builds their problem solving. It mm. builds these other skills that they have to learn how to survive. They mm-hmm. have to be able to come out of it and still find a way to succeed in a non-traditional way. And because they learn how to do that from a young age, mm-hmm. that just builds and builds and builds as they go through school and as they get to college. And then the next thing you know, someone like Richard Branson, who the founder of Virgin, mm-hmm. and like he was a miserable student. He's... Yeah diagnosed dyslexic and has these there are so many successful businessmen there are so many successful entrepreneurs individuals who do amazing things that they're either rich or just really well known or have invented important things whatever who all struggled when they were in school Mm -hmm. and who they are now is based on their ability to adapt and be creative and use different parts of their brain that people like me where school was easy for me I do not consider myself super creative, mm-hmm. and I'm relatively lazy mm-hmm. because I didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. I could just you say it, I understand it. Moving on, let's go. Yeah. Like I didn't have to put in that work, yeah. and so I don't hate that I was able to just make it through school relatively easily. But I am envious of people who have really good, like natural work ethic, yeah. and people who are have grown to the point where their creative side is much more developed 
because I didn't have yeah. to do that. Out of and necessity. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's really fascinating. That's a really cool observation, you know, because it's like it's not that you aren't creative, but that potential was never needed. Yeah. It wasn't encouraged because in the systems, like people who excel – I actually read a different article that is – has like complementary ideas. Mm-hmm. And basically what this article was about, it was about valedictorians and people who do really well in school. Yeah. And pretty much for the same reasoning, they were saying the funniest thing is these kids who get straight A's, elementary school, all the way through college, who are just like the most excellent students, rarely go on to become the CEOs and the leaders um, and the most cunning, smartest, like business people in the professional world. Why is that? Um, well, because those type of people, um, it doesn't take creativity to fit into a system. You're you're learning efficiency, yeah. right? You're like, okay, cool. This is how it's set up. I got it. Boom, 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 boom. I'm checking all the boxes. Yeah. And and that might be great. Like you might, you know be on the board of a bit you might like they might want to hire you as an employee but you're not going to start a business you're not going to take a risk you're not going to do something that might compromise your gpa right (laughs) like because it's like oh snap no i gotta get and so that's what he was saying he was like okay you can all these folks they 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 go on and sure they have like moderately successful lives but it's usually the people who struggled in school who think a little different, who don't check all the boxes, who don't work the most efficiently per se, but the most creatively. (laughs) And the risk-taking, the creative process is often more complicated and slower and things like that, but it ends up birthing new ideas, new businesses. It ends up eventually pushing and leading over the people who were very efficiently checking all the boxes. And so then you know, they end up working for these people over here. And it was like really, it was a really fascinating thing. Um, and yeah, that's basically they were, the, the gist of the article was like, don't stress yourself out trying to get, you know, GPA, uh, perfect GPA, like have balance in life and incorporate creativity. But um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing how, how Malcolm Gladwell had that similar idea. Cause I mean, that makes sense. You know, it's like, why would you have to figure out a different way if the way that they taught you works for you? <laughs> there's, there's, there's no need, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, uh, it's, it, it's really frustrating to me because it's not just with education, but I think a lot of people make the wrong assumption that there's this idea of objectivity, you know, of, you know, school, public school is just objective. You're just objectively teaching kids information that everyone needs to grow and the information they're teaching you, the way they're teaching you that information, all of these things are subjective Um, and they're influenced by the culture and the thinking of the people in power. And in America, when we're talking about, I I understand particular like cities or school districts might have more diversity, but if we're talking about the powers that be at at large, you know, it's a white way of thinking. And there is a big difference when uh, people from different backgrounds have significant influence on how to educate someone. Um, I know this is like super random, but trust me, it, it, it actually makes sense. Um, and it ties into what we're talking about. But I have a, I have a homegirl, um, and she's a coder, right? And she is half Indian, half 
Mexican. And she was talking about how she was working on a project one time with this other coder who was black, but she didn't know that at the time. Um, and they had never met in person, and they had screen names, so they didn't know anything about each other. It was just like they got paired up to like code this thing together. Mm-hmm. And um, and she sends him the part of the project that she worked on, and he immediately says, oh, what are you? And he go, she goes, what? Excuse me? She was super young at the time. And uh, he goes, well, I mean, your, your code, it's, it's Asian. I can tell, like, by the way you built your code. She's like, what are you talking about? And, uh-huh. and she's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm half Indian um, and half Mexican. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. It was like Asian but not like traditionally. That makes sense. And basically, um, as she grew and understand, like, the culture of coding, for example, she was saying, you know, the way we organize information is in code is not universal. It's cultural, right? And so the example she gave was – a bookshelf. She's like, in Western culture nations, you have a big bookshelf, usually central, you know, put in the living room or something, yep. and you have all your books on there, right? Um, she goes, that makes no sense in an Asian context. Why would you put all the books, no matter what they're about, on the same shelf? Mm-hmm. She goes, in an Asian household, you would have a small bookshelf in the kitchen with all the cookbooks. You would have a small bookshelf in the kids' room with all the children's books. You'd have a small bookshelf in the living room uh, right next to the coffee table with all the coffee table books with the pictures. You know, it's just like a different way of organizing mm-hmm. information, right? And so she goes, he basically saw that in my code. The way you have these things organized. Now, it'll do the same thing in the end, right? But all that to say That's is... Funny. Yeah, That's exactly. Yeah, and so that was just the example she gave. But all that to say is like, these things are not objective. They're coming from a cultural lens. And, and sometimes you can organize information differently and have the same end result. And you just have a different way of doing it. But sometimes you can have a drastically different approach and it will change the end result. And it would be a lot better for certain people if you used this system instead of that system. Well, we know when it comes to education and other things in America, who benefits from the systems that be, right? Like if you really start looking into the numbers of you know, graduates and you look in numbers of, of net worth, like I, I did – I read this article a few years back on the city of Boston, right? And it was called The Color of Wealth in Boston. And it had the net worth of different um, ethnic groups in and around the greater Boston area. And for black families, for non-immigrant African-American households in the greater Boston region, the net worth was $8. Now, the net worth for white families in the same region was $247,500. That's one city. And that's not just Boston. You go to any city in America, you go to the poor side of town, you go to the hood, you're going to the black side of town. That's just what it is. So unless you genuinely believe all those black people in Boston are that much lazier than all those white people, then we have to say that's a systematic thing. $8? (laughs) net worth versus $247,500 for white and black families in the same region, right? So I look at things like that and I say these systems are benefiting clearly to a significant margin, one people group far greater than the rest of us. Mm. Um, And so that's why, you know. I went through my educational system thinking I was stupid my whole life, and I was never stupid. But I genuinely believe that from the bottom of my heart. Oh. <laughs> and uh, and I think uh, 
you know, a lot of folks are suffering because of the way we do education and um, and the way our politics and our economic systems are all these things. And, and it's usually people of color. And so, yeah, that's something that I try to address a lot in my art um, because, you know, you can talk numbers and those are compelling here and there. But when you tell stories, when you when you're able to make songs and poetry, um, a lot of times it can help people understand it in a way that's less intimidating because, you know, it's like you can quote all the statistics you want. People aren't going to remember the numbers, but people, when they're moved by a story, they'll remember a story. They'll remember a song. They'll remember – they'll revisit a work of art, you know. You're going to read an article once, but if a song hits you, you're going to download it, and you're going to listen to it thousands of times over the course of your life, likely, if it's one of your favorite songs, you know. Like, it's like those – Art people like return to especially recorded art like you know poetry and music and and uh, so yeah I just I'm really passionate about helping folks understand and reframe um, using creativity because again it opened up so many things for me uh, and helped me grow but yeah it's 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 funny because I'm I'm very hopeful uh, but I'm also like not afraid of reality and I feel like. We can't really have hope unless we're willing to be honest about our reality and not just like, oh, it's all good and just love everybody. It's like, nah, homie, $8. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? $8, 247000 And that was the median net worth, mm-hmm. which means there was a significant amount of families, of black families, below $8 and, and, and a significant amount of white families, you know, that had more money than that, you know, and it was just like – Dang, you know, that's the reality of the situation. In 2019, I always tell people, you know, I think especially in recent years, it's talking about race is not fun, especially not in America with the history you have. Um, It's an exhausting and repetitive. But I'm like, but if now that study was from 2015, just a few years ago, though, and I'm like, I'm not mad about what happened in slavery days. I'm not mad about the civil rights era where I couldn't eat at the same restaurant as you. I'm mad about $8. That's right now. You know what I'm saying? Um, And the thing, the way I explain it is one of the biggest frustrating things for me is when people are like, oh, come on. We have improved so much. And don't you think like, yeah, we still got some work to do, but things are so much better. You know, we can go to the same schools. We can eat at the same restaurants. Every, we have black friends. You can intermarry. All that this stuff. That should have never had to be a thing. <clears throat> right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's you not know. some standard like, oh, we reached the standard. That's where we should have started. Yeah, exactly. But even honestly, even within the black community, I remember a few years ago at a family function, some of the older people in the family were basically – it wasn't directed towards me specifically, but it was like, oh, you know, we had it way worse. And, uh, you know, y'all up here fighting and revolution and marching over nothing. You should you should have seen how bad it used to be. And my response to that type of thinking, whether it's coming from black folks or white folks or anybody else, is mm-hmm. this. I, I just again, let me hypothetical story. If you and I, me being black, you being white, got hired at a job. And they agreed to pay us both twenty dollars an hour. And we worked for two weeks and we got our first paycheck and you got $20 an hour and I got paid $5 an hour. Well, I would be pissed, obviously, mm-hmm. and I'd march into the office and I'd be protesting. I'd say, I got hired at $20 an hour. We are equal. We do the same job. I deserve my $20 an hour. Okay. 
okay, 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 you're right, we'll fix it. So another two weeks go by, I go, and I get $10 an hour instead of five. I'm marching in and I'm going, I'm saying, look, okay, well, we paid you more than last time. Yeah, that's great, but I still deserve 20 as equal. Mm -hmm. I do not care if you pay me $19.99. I am marching, I am protesting because there is no such thing as almost equal. And I personally think it's disrespectful to my ancestors who did have it worth worse to settle for $19.99 because we're not almost equal. We're all the way equal. So until we're all the way equal, then I'm going to be marching in protest. Well, it's just a penny. Well, if it's not that big of a deal, then just give it to me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, then just give it to me then because it is, it's a huge deal. Because anything less than equal isn't equal. And that's the end of the story. And so that's what I tell people. I don't care that we're better off than we were. Hmm. Where we were was awful and should have never been, as Jacob said. And where we are is better than that. But you know what? We're nowhere near Mm $19.99. We're $8,257,500. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, that argument is, is a weak one to me that is coming from a place of ignorance. Um, and it's very and privilege. It's very easy to say that when you're not the one getting gypped, <laughs> to say it's only a penny. It's my penny, homie, <laughs> and I want it. You know. Yeah. So yeah, and it's more than a penny. But even if it was, I'd still be marching. You know. So that's kind of why I'm so passionate about all this stuff. Hmm. Um, in principle, but also in experience. You know, I've. I got more stories than I would like to have. Um, this this is not in theory. This is not just I'm reading this article about the state of black people. This is an experience in so many things, which I don't really want to get into all of it right yeah. now. But I've I've lived it over and over again. So, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> is there any way I could get more water in this vessel? <laughs> 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 Are you taking, are you I'll go me? fill it up in the drinky fountain. <laughs> oh, I appreciate <laughs> you, brother. <laughs> um, probably the one that's right downstairs because the drinking fountain's right there. <laughs> For our podcasters, there's a drinking fountain right downstairs because <laughs> you care. Um, so, you really went. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of that, I was like, how did we get here? I don't even <laughs> care because this is too good. Um, what, so for the people listening who may not know, how did that creative process start? Um, maybe talk about why you chose where you went, what you were studying, and then the path of learning about this type of poetry that you got into, mm-hmm. how that started, and how it grew early on. Yeah, so um, again, I grew up, in born and raised in Long Beach um, during a time where um, in the black community and the hip-hop community, uh, and I'm not just saying this because I'm biased and I'm from here, but at the time, it's not the case anymore, but at the time, like, the biggest artists in rap music were coming from Southern California and specifically Long Beach, Snoop Dogg, Nate Dogg, Warren G, and Dr. Dre. Um, a lot of the music coming out of this region um, uh, Tupac, uh, like when I was a really young and then growing up as well, um, was from this area. And, um, 
So it's not just that I liked hip hop, but they were also like hometown heroes, you know, like Snoop Dogg and Nate Dogg went to Polly High. Not Milliken. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the thing is, Cheap shot. <laughs> the thing is, I I grew up around that, around that culture, around that music, and I loved it. Um, and I never really wrote, you know. But what I would do as a kid, I remember challenging myself. I used to memorize lyrics. I had so many lyrics in my head, and I wanted to be able to rap every word just like the the rapper, you know. Um, but it wasn't until high school where I started writing at all. Um, I never really wrote uh, – no, I didn't write hip-hop. Uh, and then poetry, I didn't really write poetry either. There was, like, a girl I had a crush on in my youth group that I wrote, like, maybe six poems about one time, like, like <laughs> 11th grade. But I didn't write poetry. Um, and then hip-hop, I never wrote songs. What I wrote was – and Jacob knows about this. So when I first got a cell phone <laughs> – so you know how you can so do the good. away message like so hey you know I was Mike I'm not at the phone. Well, um actually actually even before I got a cell phone at the house <laughs> we had the answering machine for the house phone which nobody has those anymore. Um but me and my siblings we wrote a rap for our answering machine. I still remember every word. Really? <laughs> oh yeah, of I that don't know first one. I, oh I don't yeah, know if you, I ever heard that. No, you didn't hear that one. We was little when we did it. it was like, no. "What up, yo? It's the Borne Click. Sorry, we ain't home. We be on a trip. So leave your name and your digits too. Don't worry, we get back to you. All right, y'all. We out. We done. The Borne Clan be number one. Hey ho, hey ho. Oh, you like that, Dell? <laughs> So oh weird. my that's so incredible <laughs> but all of us took different lines yeah. so all we were all like jumping in and taking different lines so that was actually the very first answering machine rap that we did well now i didn't even like make that connection till right now because i'm like no, that was the that's where i got the idea from so mm. <laughs> so uh then fast forward when i got a cell phone um I started writing rap verses for my away message. So instead of just like, I'm not here, I would basically say I'm not here in a rap. But then I would just add other stuff in there too. And uh, it was funny because I was like, I would never write songs. I would just, but like every few weeks, I would just change it. Mm -hmm. And I would like write a new rap verse specifically for my answering machine. <laughs> And so I was so proud of it. This was, I had never written a song. I had never written to a beat. I had only written away message rap verse. It's <laughs> so, a very niche. <laughs> anyways, so I remember telling Jacob because I was so proud. I was like, call my phone. Call my phone. Right. <laughs> I was like, bro, 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 bro. I got that new heat. I dropped that. <laughs> I dropped that new away message, bro. Call my phone, bro. I'm not gonna answer. <laughs> Anyways, so that this, was <laughs> this is a distinct memory I have. I do recall this happening and just being floored. Oh it was my incredible. gosh, it was funny. Because <laughs> this is at a time when people like you could get the away messages that was it was like the ring back, so there would like be a song playing for you instead, yeah. and you could like. You, there was one like basic one. Jeremy always had the yeah. like the classical music. <laughs> yeah, that one. But you could you could at some point you could choose an actual like pop culture song or whatever. So that started to become a thing. But like Michael's like, nah, I got found stuff. And this is incredible. It was funny. So, but at that point, 
it was just fun. To be honest, I did not take my hip hop seriously. It was just a fun thing to do because I love hip hop. Um, but the way or the way I started taking it more seriously and actually writing songs with choruses and music was when I got to college. Um, <clears throat> my college was not very hip hop, as you could imagine. Uh, well, didn't the, one of the well, well, that's the thing. So, my college was not hip hop at all. But the very few people of color who were there, we were instant friends. Uh, it was just like, if you black, you are my friend. If you Latino, you are my friend. We need to stick together. <laughs> um, and so, I quickly made a group of small group of friends. And one of my homies uh, from Miami is a Haitian cat named Abraham Metellus. Um, he uh, was really into hip hop. We liked a lot of the same artists. And he wanted to learn about music production. So he downloaded some, like, free software, and then he bought himself a little snowball mic. And he was like, hey, Mike, I'm trying to learn how to, like, make songs, and I need songs. So how about you, like, rap with me? And I was like, I I guess. So even then, I could never write a full song. I was like, write one verse, and Abraham will write one verse, and we try to come up with a chorus and things like that. Um, so that's when I started writing with my buddies. It was Abraham and a couple other cats. Um, and we started uh, just showing them around school to our friends. We're like, yo, listen to this song we made. It was terrible, terrible quality. Both the production, the beats, the beats were free. We didn't make the beats. Um, and the rapping, we were still growing. We were just starting. But we were very proud of it. Um, and it was interesting. <laughs> and it was interesting because when I started showing people, like specifically, they would be like, man, the song is cool. But yo, Micah, like your verse, man, like you're like, you're good at this. And I was like, oh, words? Like, I'm just, yeah, I'm just having fun. Like, I'm not thinking career, nothing. But it happened enough to where I was like, maybe, maybe I am good at this. And so there was an upperclassman named Tyrone who was a rapper as well. And we really became tight. And we started doing a lot of shows together. So that's how I started taking it more seriously. My freshman and sophomore year of school, I started rapping with Tyrone um, around Chicago. We would rap at schools. We would also rap um, at, like, youth groups, churches, and we would also rap at venues. I remember one time we rapped at this venue in Chicago called The Beat Kitchen, and we tore the house down. And we was, I mean, we was in Bible college writing some, like, really churchy raps, but we could rap, though. Like, I just, we had some hot beats, and I remember one time we rapped at The Beat Kitchen, and, and this dude was, like, drunk as a skunk, comes up to us like, hey, man. You guys are awesome. Like, I'm not religious or whatever, but the stuff you're talking about was good. And it was like, <laughs> it was like so funny, right? So, like, okay, cool. So that's how I started rap taking music more seriously. Poetry was not on my radar at all. It just wasn't. Um, but then it was, I would always come home in the summer. And so it was the summer before my junior year of college. Um, I was home and my homeboy, Corey, invited me to this event on it still happens it's every tuesday night up in la off of fairfax it's called the poetry lounge it happens at this spot called the greenway court theater and he goes hey man i'm going to do this like poetry thing and i'm like i mean whatever i'm not into poetry he's like no i'll come in it'll be cool i'm like all right whatever it's tuesday night i ain't doing nothing so i went with him and i had never seen spoken word live i'd seen it on youtube like deaf poetry jam like stuff like that um but it was my first time seeing it live, and I was blown away. I was just like, 
what the heck is this and it wasn't even that everybody was super dope like the the writing wasn't always amazing the performance wasn't always amazing but the community of it was um people were up there being so vulnerable sharing things that i thought you weren't allowed to say or that you know like i'm the only person in the world who feels this way and then i'm like oh i guess i'm not the only person in the world who feels this way and so that was the part of it that really drew me to it uh, and that night i was like i want to come back specifically to this open mic it wasn't like i want to be a spoken word artist it was just like i want to write something so i can come back to this event and share and that was my goal and so i ended up starting to write uh so that i could do that and i ended up going back but the list was so long i didn't get on the second time um but fast forward to the end of that summer when i moved back or when i flew back to uh, Chicago for school in the fall, I started hitting up poetry and spoken word open mics everywhere. In addition to the hip hop I was already doing, and and when I actually would get booked to rap, if it would be a short set, like say, oh you got three songs, so instead of three songs, I would do like two songs, and then I would end with a poem. And people like my hip hop, but they love my poetry. Like I started just like shutting down poetry slams and open mics, like. I, I don't know. There was something about it to where I had already had experience performing because I've been rapping for two years at this point. Um, but it was something about my writing that I felt like it was easier for me to find my voice as a poet, as a spoken word poet specifically, because with hip hop, even though I, I grew up listening to it, I cared about it more. Mm. And I had a lot of people that I admired. And I think all of that was in my head of like trying to mimic, but then find my own voice, but then being like overly emotionally invested in it. Cause it was like, I want to be a dope rapper. Cause I love hip hop so much. When it came to spoken word, it was like, I don't even know what this is. This is cool. Let me just try this. <laughs> so it was like, I, I didn't have as much pressure on my poetry. And so I just kind of let it be. And so I found my voice easier. And I think people, yeah, they could just hear that. And because I wasn't. I hadn't been around the spoken word community a lot. I didn't know what the norms were, and so I didn't fall into a lot of the traps of like people who lived in spoken word. And there's like a very kind of predictable cadence and rhythm that a lot of spoken word poets have. I didn't have that, you know, because I didn't grow up around it like that. So anyway, so now I'm in college, like my junior and senior year, and I'm doing both hip hop and spoken word poetry. But I still thought of myself primarily as a rapper. But even still not taking it too seriously as far as career, but just like, all right, this is a legit hobby though. Um, but yeah, when I graduated, I ended up pursuing it as a career at full time, not directly. There was a lot of steps in between. Um, but two years after I graduated, I ended up like quitting my part-time job, stopping my internship and then going full time as an artist. And by that time, kind of poetry had taken the forefront and so i've this whole time like over the past like seven years i've always done both but definitely people know me as more of a poet but in my heart i'm always a rapper first i started rapping first and i love hip-hop more i love i love poetry i love the poetry community but like when i write a dope poem i'm like okay cool i'm proud of myself when i write a dope rap song i'm like yes yes <laughs> yeah baby that's right i got bars <laughs> i get way more excited way more excited uh yeah so 
2020 is going to be dope because I'm putting out both. I'm, I'm actually putting out my first book of poetry. Writing for the page is very different than writing uh, to perform or even an album of spoken word. It's just different. So I'm putting out a book of poetry, but I'm also putting out my second full-length uh, hip-hop project. I've, I've put out multiple hip-hop projects, but they were just like EPs, the first two. But um, but yeah, in 2018, I put out A Time Like This, which was my first full-length rap album. And then this one will be the follow-up in 2020. Mm. Uh, it'll be called, well, I don't know, I don't know about that. It'll be about, I should say, uh, masculinity. I, I haven't fully decided on the title yet. <laughs> yeah, so, but, yeah, I'm excited about it. So, you have a number of projects that you've done uh-huh. in terms of albums and things. Um, each one kind of had its own, definitely had its own thought process as you went through them and stuff. Can mm-hmm. you kind of talk about your progression as a writer and as an artist looking at what each album was and what went into each project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, When it comes to my creative projects, uh, I try to just be where I'm at Mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, there's artists and I respect it who have more of a very clear idea of what they want their art to be. Um, and they're like working towards building that. And so they like pick a genre and they pick like, I'm going to be a rapper or I'm going to do, you know, be a poet or this, the other. For me, I just like challenging myself. I think primarily I'm a writer, but that can express itself in a lot of different ways. And over the years, when it comes to my creative projects, it has like, um, my first EP was like hip hop that I played with a live band on a lot of the tracks. Then my second project was a full-length album of all spoken word poetry. Um, Then I did another album of poetry, uh, and I did an album of blues music because at the time I was just really listening to a lot of blues, and I got into it, and and writing blues was a challenge for me because with, like, spoken word and hip-hop, it's super wordy. You cram a lot of words in three to five minutes with blues – um, the vocabulary is smaller, simpler, much fewer words, but it's still powerful. Um, and so learning how to tell a story with like a fifth of the amount of words and a smaller vocabulary um, and still have it be compelling was a challenge for me. Right. And also singing was a challenge for me. It's something I hadn't really done before um, on my recordings, at least. And so it's things like that where I'm like, if I get an idea, I'm just going to go with it. Um, and so. Yeah, I think challenging myself, wanting to always step outside of my comfort zone is the main thing. And obviously there's the things that are a part of me that I keep returning to, like hip-hop and now spoken word as well. Um, but there will always be those those challenge projects like the Blues album or like I'm doing a folk project as well. Like it might not be done by 2020. But I have a homegirl who plays acoustic guitar, and she has an amazing voice, and she's a great songwriter. And so this past year, we've been writing songs and performing together all over. Um, but it's folk music. <laughs> it's, like, totally different than singing blues um, because I'm singing with another vocalist, female vocalist. And also, like, the blues was very, like, gritty, and this is very, like, romantic-sounding music. It's love songs. So now I'm singing, like, finesse and soft and gentle versus that gritty blues just again, it's like another challenge of my creativity. Writing 
love songs is like I wrote a lot of love poems, but I don't share them a lot in my book. They're there. But a lot of the poems that I end up sharing, a lot of the events I get invited to are either like faith based or justice oriented. So a lot of those type of poems and songs get shared a lot. Um, but I love this project I'm doing with my homegirl Lucy because there's anybody who knows me knows again. I am I'm a romantic. I love hearing love stories and how people got together and all this stuff. Um, and so the challenge of letting that part of me show more in my songwriting, uh, I, I was excited about that. So, yeah, I just think um, it's not the best for my career if we're just talking about, you know, getting money. <laughs> uh, like it's not the best capitalistic strategy for success. It would be way better if I just picked a thing and stuck with it and got better at that one thing and marketed that. Um, part of the reason I think I've struggled to like have a manager or anything like that is because people think I'm talented, but they're like, what are we going to do with you? <laughs> so your last album was like mainly hip hop, but had four poems on it. And then the album before that was a blues album. Now you're working on a, now you're working on a book and a folk project and another rap album. Yes, that's correct. Okay. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. I'm not going to stop, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's cool. It's fine. But, uh, yeah, but it, it has been a struggle because, I mean, it's a struggle for any artist, but especially when you're kind of all over the place. Um, but I can't I, – I don't know how to be any other way. And even if I did, I wouldn't want to be any other way because every single one of these projects has introduced me to – it's not just challenged me personally creatively, but it's introduced me to a new community. Like now that I'm doing a book, I'm in the world of not spoken word poets but poets who write for the page and – authors and publishing houses and learning just learning and building relationships when i did the blues album i got introduced to amazing artists like liz vice and producers like blaine stark where you know if i was only doing spoken word and hip-hop it i wouldn't have needed to work with those artists um but doing a blues record i need vocalists and musicians who can play blues and so it just expanded my network and challenged me and i just that's how i roll so yeah. <laughs> you mentioned uh, you mentioned these communities because now, like you said, you having all these experiences and skills, you end up just becoming part of these communities. Um, this is going to kind of be a shift. That's fine. But how how important has it been to you to be invested in various communities? And what that's meant to you as an artist receiving encouragement and support, what it's meant to you as an individual, just like your own personal growth, mental health, like what does that look like? And that's kind of leading into I want us to be able to talk about energies a little bit. But, oh, yeah. But like <clears throat> starting with, you know, big picture community, <clears throat> how important has community been to you as an artist, as an individual? Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, it's possible to create art in isolation, and a lot of people have over the years in a lot of different disciplines. They kind of lock themselves in their cave, and they write their poems, or they paint their canvases, or whatever, and I'm not knocking that if that's your best way of creating, but I think, <clears throat> you know, the favorite, my personal favorite part about art was the community around it. Even before I did it, like, my favorite thing is to talk about hip-hop and argue about who's the best and to talk about the beef. And it's not just like in me in my room. It's like 
at high school, you know, just in the courtyard, like going back and forth about, yo, did you hear Game's new album? Oh, I was weak, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, like all, <laughs> like whatever it was. I love that community aspect of it. And same thing with poetry, you know, um, when I got invited to that open mic and it was just like, whoa, like people are connecting through the art. Um, and so for me, that, like that was a huge motivator and and also it has sustained me and helped me grow. So when I started writing poetry, I very quickly uh, found and well not found, I helped create a poetry club at my college and it was just me and a few other poets and we would meet once a week and our only rule was you had to bring a new poem each week. And that club um, just helped me grow because it wasn't just, well, I'm writing poems when I feel like it. It's like, well, I know I'm going to go to club and I I want to have something to show and then being influenced by other people who were doing it, who were growing, who were good, who had different perspectives than me. Um, I just, I, I think that it grows you as an artist, but also as a person, people's art often is coming from really deep, uh, personal places. Um, sometimes very difficult wounds and sometimes very beautiful but still personal stuff you know as they were talking about the most important relationships in their life or the hardest things they've ever been through or whatever um and so it's so funny because as i'm in all these creative communities with poets and musicians rappers and artists we up here talking about our our work where really we're just opening our hearts up to each other um and there i can't tell you how many times I've been leading creative writing workshops and like just in tears, like students left and right. And I'm like, this, I, I do yeah. like, I mean, I care about creativity. I do, yeah. but I care about humans. I care about people's souls. I care about people's healing. I care about people knowing that they're loved. And for me, the arts has been such a beautiful space where people will open up in ways that they will not open up. In any other setting, especially mm -hmm. younger people, high school students that I've done um, workshops with. It's like if I sit down with a group of high schoolers, especially, you know, the cool kids, whatever, and be like, so how are you doing? Fine. How's everything at home? Cool. You sure? Yep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. but I walk into that high school and I say, yo, yo, my name is Micah. I'm a spoken word poet and a rapper. Let me spit a little something, something for you, right? I spit a verse. Uh, I do a poem. I do whatever. And I say, hey, you know, we're actually going to write spoken word poetry today. And and here's the prompt and, and, and I'll introduce the prompt and we'll do our thing. And the same kids that one word answers, arm crossed, not interested at all, are like pouring their hearts out, talking about their home life or their dreams or whatever the thing is. Kids are supporting each other, hugging each other. Kids are talking about being suicidal. Uh, like I did a I did a. Uh, workshop at, at Wilson High here in Long Beach and it was just amazing like these kids just got up and like hugged each other there was like uh, a student there she was a lesbian student and she was talking about being bullied because of her sexuality and how she looks and all these things and the other kids were just so supportive of her and they like got up there and put their arms around her and they were and then and then this little this girl just gets up and gives a speech like a like a freaking inspirational speech about like <laughs> anti-bullying and i was just like this is incredible i was like and there that concludes our poetry workshop you know what i'm saying i'm just like what in the world like
like so it's stuff like that that mm-hmm. I'm just like this is this is why I'm so passionate about it. It's not just like this is a really cool hobby. Um, it brings people together, and and honestly, it's not just the arts. I think you know any passion uh, typically brings community around it, and that's what really matters. That's why mm-hmm. sports matters. You know, like people can be trite or, or act like sports is a trite thing, but you know when you ask me about sports, I'm like, yeah, I like the Lakers, but I love my grandma. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love yeah. my dad. Like, yeah. like, it's the community. You know, it brings people together. And and we need more things that bring people together, you know? And, yeah. uh, you know, so. Yeah. I forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, you answered it, so it doesn't matter. Um, so, again, still on that topic of community, you were the creator and initiator of a very specific community of people including myself and a couple of our friends um can you i don't think i've ever like asked you this but like how did you decide to start it what made you want to and then kind of describe what it was and then i'll ask another question after that. yeah for sure um so what jacob is referring to is it's a bible study that we used to do um it was called Bow Energies, which means Sons of Thunder, um, which our friend Jeremy came up with the name. And we thought he was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly we because like, he mispronounced it. Yeah, well, uh, even if he pronounced it correct, I didn't know what he was talking about at the time. <laughs> but he's like, it's in the Bible. I was like, where, homie? <laughs> but anyway, it's where James and John, Jesus is talking to James and John, who these guys were kind of like hotheads. They kind of like reacted real quick to stuff, you know. And so Jesus had nicknamed them. Bow energies, and it says in the Bible, it leaves it untranslated in one of the Gospels. I don't exactly know why, but then it says, which means sons of thunder. And we're like, oh, that's cool. Anyway, but we had already been meeting at that point. That's not how it came about. That's just how it got its name. Before, it didn't have a name. Because we didn't didn't really care. Didn't even have Jeremy. Yeah, it wasn't. (laughs) we wasn't really trying to do anything special, really. We weren't trying to start anything, but... Um, yeah, through our friendship, um, I ended up inviting Jacob to, uh, actually, actually this all goes back to the answering machine raps. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Because we started talking about hip hop mainly because I was like rapping on my answering machine. Yeah. And I was like, nah, nah, I'm not that good. Like, there's some really dope stuff. Because in my, my raps, in the dentures to saying I'm not here and I'll call you back, I also, like, <laughs> they were also evangelical in nature. I was like, by the way, Jesus loves you and I'm not here. I'll call you back. <laughs> you know, like, uh, anyway. So Jacob and I had just been talking about, like, hip-hop and, like, the like the way I incorporated my faith in it. And he knew I was a Christian. Jacob didn't go to church or anything like that at the time. So, um, anyway, there's a big... Uh, Christian rapper that I, I loved uh, that he was coming through town doing a concert and so we uh, invited Jacob to go with us to that concert um, and that and a series of other things um, led to Jacob being more interested and asking a lot more questions um, about faith and Christianity and church and then he started going to church and things like that um, but this was all happening right when I was graduating high school and I was really bummed out because I was like oh man <laughs> like Jacob was like finally interested in this stuff and now I'm leaving like I wanted to like be here with him and all this stuff um but you know thankfully God got him and he continued to to ask those questions and seek out community on his own however when I came home from college for the summer I think that was the first year I yeah. um 
yeah, we just started hanging out again. I was like, hey, dude, I'm back for the summer. Um, and I don't honestly, I couldn't tell you exactly when or how it started. But again, both of us were just wanting to continue to grow in our faith. And the Bible is cool and confusing and whatever. And so uh, we wanted to learn more about it. So we just really started meeting um, in his bedroom and once a week. And we would just like read the Bible. Um, and eventually other people started joining us. We would invite people here and there. Um, and, you know, we'd have guests come in and out but there was like a core group by uh we did it for a few years with just us and it was like me jacob our buddy matt and jeremy was the core and then every now and then other people would come and visit i had a buddy oh, i still have a friend named andy uh who came andy the satanist i, say, the, <laughs> I remember hearing that yeah story yeah yeah so uh, it was so funny uh he's still a satanist and uh but he was very interested in bible study it was the greatest thing ever <laughs> he would it's come. one of my favorite stories <laughs> yeah so um anyway it was funny because um, – so we did that that summer and I think the next summer as well. But what ended up happening was uh, like when I left, uh, they continued and Jacob like continued inviting other people. And actually I think Jacob should really take over the story from here because it grew in ways that I was unaware of. And I didn't, I didn't realize how many guys were involved. Like I knew he said they had kept doing it. But uh, meanwhile, I'm in Chicago. And I start another Bible study with another friend of mine. And uh, I was like, hey, there's this group at home called Bow Energies. And this one was all dudes as well. So I was like, yeah, we're like Bow Energies like Chicago. Like we should do this. So like we're meeting in Chicago and there's just a small little group of – there's like four of us out there, two, three or four of us each week. Um, and then this group kind of kept evolving and – it was massive. I didn't know it was massive until I think one time we, I think, Skyped or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, how many of you are there? This is an army. This is, anyway, so I'll, tell, well, I'll let Jacob so, tell that part. So what happened the first summer is because the first couple times we met were at your house in your dining room. Oh, got you. Because okay. it was me and Steven, I think, were the oh, first okay. couple. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we just, your house was busy and we felt like we needed somewhere else. And so, yeah, we were started in my room and because that you'd been gone basically for that whole first year. And so when you came back, um, we started and that's when Matt got involved because I'd become close with Matt at Long Beach Grace. Um, but then so the first year we went through Joshua mm -hmm. and the second year we went through Exodus and we even finished Exodus by doing a Passover meal. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> it was great. And then because we fasted and then we had the meal and then we were like, OK, this wasn't enough. We need to go to Denny's. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the handful of us rolled over to Denny's and had a lot to eat there. The lamb was delicious, though. And we put honey was, on vanilla ice cream. And it, that was also milk and honey, baby. <laughs> oh, man, it was great. So but. By the end of that, during that second year is when Dan started coming. Okay. And so, but even after the second year, both Matt and I were like, we're not going to lead. We're still not mm -hmm. going to lead this because we're not at that point. But Dan is a natural leader and very, like, he can do that. Yeah. And so you talked to Dan about taking it over because you didn't want it to end for me and Matt because yeah. we did the first summer and then me and Matt didn't do anything for the whole school year. Like gotcha. We did our own thing, hung out, but we weren't really involved doing much. We'd go to college group and stuff, but we weren't doing our own Bible study or anything. Yeah. So then we do the second summer and it goes really well. It was awesome. But then near the end of the summer when you were getting ready to leave again, you were like, I don't, like, we were like, well, we're not doing, <laughs> we're yeah. not going to leave. <laughs> so you specifically didn't want us to have an entire year again yeah. of not having something. 
So you talked to Dan, and at that point, Dan and a couple guys were moving into the Joshua house yeah. here local, and he was moving in with some other guys from the um, Navigators group at Long Beach State and a couple Frisbee guys. So there were a bunch of like solid Christian dudes all living in the house together, so Dan said that they could start hosting it. Mm-hmm. And so we started going there. And at that point, even Matt went for a while, but then I think after the first, after that year, Matt wasn't able to keep coming because of school and stuff. Um, and even Jeremy kind of stopped. But that group, it went from being like the people who were living there to more of the Navigators people came. And then some guys from Ultimate came. And there would be nights where there's like 15, 18 dudes. And we <laughs> would end up splitting. Like we'd all meet and say hi. And then we'd split up and we'd go do like the study in yeah. separate rooms and do our own thing and pray in our own rooms and come back and hang out again. And that was when you're talking about like it just got too big and like <laughs> yeah. we couldn't like people's schedules like we started having like so you had like a chapter in Chicago. We yeah. started having chapters in yeah. Long Beach because <laughs> we couldn't facilitate it. And then a year, a year or two goes by and one of the guys from there, Zach, he was from San Luis Obispo. He moved back home to San Luis Obispo after he graduated. And he, like, sent us a picture that he started a chapter <laughs> at awesome. his church back home for it. So he yeah. was doing that. And then I want to say, then didn't you, didn't you also kind of do one when you went to Bend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, we literally had, like, yeah. Sons of Thunder chapters yeah. in multiple places. <laughs> Sounds like a biker game. It was, it was it pretty does. dope. Um, but, yeah, just in terms of that group, for me, and this is going to lead into my next question for you of, like, that group, specifically when it was just us um, in my room, but then also it progressed to like when we were meeting at J-House, that was where, A, that was where I learned to invest, like truly invest in other people, mm-hmm. to be genuinely interested in their lives and want to know what was going on, wanted to celebrate their successes and wanted to help them pull through their failures and pray. And like that's where I learned to pray for somebody to be able to like the the – tradition we had of like sitting in the circle or whatever sharing a prayer request and then praying for the person next to us and going around in the circle that having somebody having the person next to me pray for me to like hear them genuinely lift me up to god was is such a powerful feeling so that's where you got that from. yeah and so so i like I was somebody who prayer was like the scariest, weirdest. When you have never done that, like, because I, I was 20 mm-hmm. when all of that started in 2006. That's prayer is such a weird thing that mm-hmm. to to wrap your mind around when you've never really done that in that space, being able to do that. So having somebody pray for me, like it made me want to pray for the person next to me. Like to this day in group settings, I'm like, ah, prayer is kind of weird. Like everyone's gonna do whatever. But, like, if I have an opportunity to pray something specific for the person next to me, yeah. like, that I love doing. Um, so so that, like, learning how to do a Bible study, like, go through and look at verses and try to get meaning out of them and see what's going on at the time and, and cross-reference it with other things going on in the Bible and apply it to life. Like, that's what we were doing, mm-hmm. um, investing in each other and learning to pray. Like, all of those things are what I hold on to now to the point where like with high school group now we do the prayer thing at the end. Like I think that's so important and I think it's been really cool for our group in the last month that we've been doing it um, to just A, to get kids in the habit of praying but B, to get them also like to consciously be thinking about the person next to them and like investing even if it's just that minute. That's a very valuable 
time to do that. Hmm. So I always refer to you, <laughs> you, Matt, and Jeremy all the time and Sons of Thunder all the time in terms of this is what actual true community, this is what church looks like. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's it can be this building, it can be worship, it can be all that, but if this is how you go about your faith, sitting together in community together, investing in each other as individuals mm-hmm. and as a group diving into the word and pulling pulling wisdom from that and applying it to our lives like that is what true for me true community yeah. encouragement and, and, eating. And, and eating and eating we yes. eat a lot there's a lot of in and out there's some church chicken there was, there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of things until <laughs> until my dad got really mad at us because <laughs> i laughed too loud <laughs> we oh had, my god the show Wipeout is it's amazing <laughs> we would have our Bible study and Wipeout would be on during the Bible study so I'd record it so at the end of the Bible study we would watch Wipeout and Micah as you've heard on the podcast today when Micah laughs this is contained versus it, the type of laughing yeah. I was doing oh and granted God. it's like 11 o'clock roughly midnight at that point sometimes <laughs> and so one time my dad was like you're done get that F out <laughs> we're like oh Everyone just silent and left, and I don't know that we ever met again in the room after that. But. No, it was so funny, though. <laughs> um, I was, I mean, to be fair, I was screaming at the top of my lungs <laughs> because it was so funny. With my brother and sister literally like 12 feet away in their bedroom. My parents are across the house. Like their bedroom is on the other side of the house. And I'm sure they could hear Micah perfectly. Uh, so oh, it was worth it. Totally worth it. But, yeah, so... So for me, that was <laughs> that. That is the single most important shaping group for my faith and what my faith has become and who I am as a Christian. Um, so just like, kind of, this is like my second to last question overall. Because yeah. <laughs> what, based on having started it, participated in it, taken your own, done it in a couple different places, what? <clears throat> has the fruit been in your life from that group? What have you learned from it? What would you say to encourage other people to also do something similar? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, man, I I don't know. Like, I don't, um, I just do stuff. (laughs) 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 I like, honestly, like, I don't, um, I've always had, I don't see it as a problem. Some people do. Ex-girlfriends do, uh, <laughs> but um, I'm not really uh, I'm not really future oriented, um, and neither do I do a ton of reflecting. Like a lot of the bow energy stuff, you know. Like I I didn't realize. Uh, I mean, I know I've heard some of these stories, but even here, like talking about it, like. <clears throat> I didn't realize just how much that affected you. Like even you talking about how the way it shapes how you go about certain things. I was like, oh wow, you know, <laughs> like yeah. I, like to me, I'm like, oh, it's a Bible study. We did Bible study for a little bit, and they kind of took it and ran with it, you know. But um, I don't, I, I don't really like take a lot of time thinking about like, oh, that being the fruit of what we started, or like how that shaped. I'm sure it has shaped me, and I'm sure I've learned things along the way. Um, but yeah, I I kind of just with all the things I'm doing, 
community being one of the central themes in my life. Um, and I think it's fine to have community that forms specifically around Bible study. That's beautiful. Most of my communities now are not. I don't. I don't. I no longer am an intern at a church. I don't lead any particular spiritual community mm-hmm. in in the sense of intentionally being about Christianity or the Bible. But I am involved and lead a whole lot of communities around creativity where we end up talking about spiritual things. You know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so, I mean, just hearing even these stories, but just reminding. Like as a reminder of like, yeah, the fruit of these things can reach a lot farther than you're ever aware of. Um, And so I think the best thing, you know, when we started Bow Energies, we weren't thinking about the dozens of guys and the communities that it would. And we didn't care. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't about that. And now retrospectively, you can look back and like, oh, that's cool. You know, but like. I don't care. And like not in the sense of those things aren't important. They're incredibly important. But when I start things, I'm not thinking about legacy or what it can grow into. I'm thinking right now, at this moment in my life, with the ways that I'm gifted and with the people God has put in my life and the opportunities I have today, what is the most faithful thing to do? You know, who is God calling me to invest in and spend time with? Um, I'm going to do that. And you know what? It might mean I end up spending a whole lot of time with a group of people or an individual for like a couple months, and then that's the end of it. You know, Bow Energies could have stopped after I went back to school and never started again, and it still would have been beautiful and worth it, you know? Yeah. Um, or it could have grown. Doesn't matter <laughs> at all to me. Like, I just don't even, I don't think about that stuff. I just, yeah, I try, like, my my theme verse in life uh, is in the book of James. I think it's chapter four, I believe. But it's like a passage, and uh, it's basically talking about being present. And again, I don't think it's wrong to have goals or to be aware of the potential of what you're doing could impact people in the future. But I think we get obsessed with that to the point, like, everybody wants to be the greatest, and they want to leave a legacy. And you don't know what people are going to say about you after you're dead and gone. Um, and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> like what matters is if you know before God you were faithful with the time and the life and the gifts that you've been given right now. And so the passage in James, it's it's a warning to those who live future minded all the time. And again, not to say you're not allowed to have goals, but it says woe to you who say tomorrow or the next day we will live and, and move to such and such a town and buy and sell and start a business. It says you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Life is but a vapor. It's like a cold day, you know, when you exhale and you see your breath in front of you. And then as soon as you see it, it's just gone. It disappears like that. That that's what your life is. You're 50 to 70 to 90 years, if you're lucky, uh, in the context of eternity is like breathing out on a cold day and seeing that mist for like two seconds. And then it's gone. That is your life. So you up here worried about retirement. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or your legacy after you dead and gone. You don't know if you'll live till tomorrow. Um and so yeah, when I when I think about impact and and I don't know, like fruit and all this stuff, I'm like I genuinely believe the best thing for the future is also the best thing for right now. Yeah. Um that's just how I believe. Like to set up if I have kids or the world, the community, if I'm responsible and faithful with everything I have right now, then the future will take care of itself. As, as scripture says, tomorrow will worry about itself. <laughs> you know, uh, Jesus says that, you know, it's like, don't worry. 
And so uh, that's kind of just my approach to life. And I mean, I think it's helpful to be reflective every now and then. But yeah, I don't think about it. It's kind of like, can't change the past, can't control the future. The most, the only thing you can do anything in is in the present. Hmm. Um, you can plan for the future and then things happen that mess up all those plans. <laughs> um, but you got the present right now. You got the people right now. So yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question though. Um, the part of it of how those experiences shaped me, I, I believe they did. I just haven't really thought about how. You know, like with you, it's really cool because you're like, no, 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 this is a direct. The reason I do prayer in this fashion is because of Bo Energies. You know, that's really cool. Um, I haven't really thought about it, though. Um, I haven't thought about it, but I know I know it's influenced me in ways. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So you've mentioned and I know you've traveled quite a bit to do what you do. What is like one or two of the places you've been to, whether here or around the world, that has been one like really a meaningful, impactful experience that you've had? Again, that's either shaped you somehow as a person or shaped you as an artist. Yeah, for sure. Man, that's that's a hard one. Um, you talk for another two hours, probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my mo- the one of the experiences I'm most thankful for. Um, was the first time I got to go to the continent of Africa. I went Mm. to the nation of Ghana, which is in West Africa. And Ghana specifically is a place where a lot of the slaves came from. There were big slave fortresses that were built on the coast of Ghana, and the slave ships would literally come up right to the coast. And these slaves who have been captured and are just staying in these prisons on the coast, they would just unload them right into the boats. So I got to visit those facilities. Um, and as a person who is of African-American descent and a descendant of slaves on both sides of my family, like none of my family were like African immigrants later or anything. Um, it was just a really meaningful time uh, learning that history uh, from the other side, not from like the American textbooks, but from the perspectives of Ghanaians, what happened and how they think about it. Um, being in that place, knowing that had it not been for injustice, this likely or a place like this would have been my home. It would have been my culture. It was, it was weird, mm-hmm. uh, but it was invaluable. It was something that I wish every African American um, had the experience. And I know that's not possible, but like it. It was just so, there was so, there, oh man, I could talk about that specific trip for hours. There were so many layers to it to unpack, um, especially like the faith-based part as well, because one of the most haunting and disgusting things about uh, that slave fortress was in the middle of the slave fortress, there was a church, uh, a small chapel built for the white people who worked there, mm-hmm. who basically were keeping and selling the slaves, were Christian people. And so they wanted to go to church on Sunday, um, but they lived at the fortress. There was nothing else around there. So they built a little chapel and had a little pastor, priest, whatever, do services on Sunday. And then, you know, after they were done taking communion and stuff, they'd go back to selling the slaves. Uh, <laughs> and it was it was so gross. Uh, but again, it was a reminder of, you know, what happens when 
a faith community sells out to power, to greed, to money, to culture, um, and really forgets the heart of the gospel, that same idea can be used to do a bunch of evil. Uh, And so that was sobering as well, like feeling everything I felt as a black person, but then who who specifically is a descendant of slaves, but then feeling everything I felt as a Christian uh, and to be like so angry and ashamed and confused, um, mad at Christianity, but still a part of it, you know? Um, and yeah, it was, it was just, it was, it was, a, it was an amazing trip. Um, but then also to see just having my eyes open to a lot of different parts of Ghana and dispelling stereotypes about, you know, starving Africans and, you know, the poor third world. And I'm like, Accra is a major city. It's got a lot of industry. It's big. It's got traffic like, like Manhattan, like (laughs) taxi drivers and bumper to bumper. Like, you know, it's got tall buildings and universities and, you know, and then there's folks who, who live out in the countryside. um, And it's not because they're, poverty stricken and don't have enough money to get a bus ticket to Accra. It's because their culture has lived like that for thousands of years. And they're fully aware that there's a big fancy city 50 miles up the road. And they're like, I want to stay living in this mud hut. It's not that I'm poor. It's this is my culture. And this is my history and my ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors lived like this. I like it here. You know, and uh, that was like one of the things that one of the uni- uh, university professors at the university in Accra was talking to us about. They're like Westerners. They're just like, oh, it's so sad. They're like, it's not sad. <laughs> Go talk to them. That's where they want to live. They're not trying yeah. to move to Accra or New York City or Paris or London, you know. And uh, there's a whole lot of other things I learned on that trip, too. But, yeah, yeah it was a beautiful time. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was one of the most impactful. And then another one, I went to India, and that, I mean, India was just, I mean, a billion people in a single nation, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was was crazy cool. Uh, The culture, the food, the clothing, the, the, you know, I spent some time in Delhi, but then I also spent some time in a place called Nagaland, which is in northeastern India, and that was just, like, never heard of Nagaland or the Naga people. They don't look like what you think when you hear the word Indian. Um, so that was just a whole education and a different culture that I knew very little about before I went there. So that was awesome. Um, yeah, those two specifically, I'm very thankful for those trips. I think I still have your postcard from Nagaland somewhere oh. <laughs> in the recesses of my stuff. Um, you do a lot of speaking, gigs, whatever, conferences, speaking at schools, all that kind of stuff. Um, and your work is emotional and means a lot to people. What is, uh, what are a couple interactions you've had with people at those events that have really stood out to you? Yeah, for sure. There's there's two that st- stand out more than anything else, really. Um, <clears throat> I I was performing in Wisconsin one time. Um, it's this poem called Mowgli's Confession about a, a good friend and former roommate of both me and Jacob's. Um, and it's a buddy of mine who struggled with suicide and who has attempted suicide at multiple times dur- during his life. He's still living, uh, thank the Lord. But 
we had a really intense conversation one time about it, and I ended up writing this poem about it, and with his permission, started sharing it. So I'm sharing this poem <clears throat> at a, uh, at an event, and this older woman, she was looked like she was like in her 50s, maybe late 40s, early 50s ish, and she comes up to me, and after my performance, and she goes, "When I was a little girl, my dad thought he was home alone. He didn't know I was in my bedroom." And I walk out of my bedroom into the living room and I see my father standing with a gun to his head about to kill himself. And as a little girl, I have to talk my father out of taking his life. And she goes, I suppressed that memory. She goes, I never told a single soul. My father never told a single soul. And I had suppressed it to the point that I almost forgot it happened. Until I heard your poem. And she goes, I've been struggling all these years, these last few decades, and I could never put my finger on what was wrong, why something just is not settled in my soul. And she goes, when I heard your poem, it reminded me that was the thing that broke me, the trauma that I have never dealt with that I need to deal with. And thank you for your poem. I'm going to go to counseling. (laughs) And I was just like, oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And uh, again, it's like when I think about success, I'm like that. That's it. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like I, I live a very stereotypical starving artist life in the sense of don't have a lot of money. Things are up and down. It's difficult. But when I have moments like that, I'm like, I feel like the richest man in the world. I feel like the most blessed person, you know? Yeah. I'm like, this is worth it. Every struggle, every broke day, week, year, I'm like, this is all worth it. To to be able to create work and share work that affects people like that. So that's one story. Another story, um, <clears throat> I have this other poem called Freak Show, and I do an intro to it um, that it, it deals with um, – pedophilia and and people who've been sexually assaulted as as children um so i talk about that in the intro and then i mention it briefly in the poem as well mm-hmm. and after i shared that poem i had actually it was a coffee shop here in long beach on the west side at fox coffee shop an older gentleman came up to me and he said i was a choir boy i was molested by my priest And I have never heard anybody talk about that topic the way you talked about it. Mm. And I needed to hear that. Thank you. And again, to think that this man was even older than First Lady. He looked like he was in his 60s, maybe 70s. And to be like his whole life, he's been carrying this and struggling with this. And not to say that he's suddenly freed from it. I'm sure he's still dealing with the trauma in some ways. But to be like... To be able to say something that helped his healing process, that gave him perspective that he hadn't heard before, to reframe it and think about it a little differently and and give him a glimmer of hope uh, to say healing is possible, forgiveness is possible, healing for himself and the person who offended him and abused him, and and forgiveness is possible. Mm -hmm. Um, It's moments like that that I'm just like, "This this is why I do what I do. You know, and so sometimes, you know, you get 
community like me and Jacob were talking about where you're really able to grow with people over years, over decades, and that's awesome. But sometimes you just, you know, you're passing through, you know, and you have one really cool interaction, intersection with someone. And even though it was brief, it impacts them the rest of their life, you know. Um, Jesus had 12 disciples, but for every one of the 12 disciples, he had so many other individuals that he met along the way that he had one conversation with or one dinner with or healed them and just kept walking, you know. And it was just like, man, like both of those are so important. Um, and again, but both of them really require being being present. You know, there were so many times where there was a, at a point in Jesus' life where he had become really, really popular. And there was a lot of people pulling him in a lot of directions. But so often you see him slowing down and making time for the people that God put in his path, right? Where it was like, you know, he's going to the next city and people are calling out to him and, and he'll stop, you know, and he'll interact with them and he'll heal them or he'll talk to them or he'll say, oh, you know, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house tonight for dinner. You know, we don't really have a record of what happened after that. We don't know if Zacchaeus was constantly following Jesus around or he just went and he had dinner with him because he was present. This guy is climbing up a tree, bending his back just to get my attention, just so he can hear me speak. Hey, I'm going to pay attention to that, dude. I'm changing the plans. I was going to go to In-N-Out, but now I'm going to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. You don't even know Zacchaeus. I know I don't know him, but the dude was climbing a tree. That's pretty cool, man. Dude must care what I'm talking about. You know, and he, like, changed his plans. And he saw people. And he had, you know, disciples, but he also had dinner with random people who was climbing trees just to hear him talk. You know, um, and so, again, it's, to me, that principle of, of being present and paying attention to who's around you and investing, um, whether you get to walk with them for a long amount of time or a brief amount of time, look them in the eye, you know, see them. And, uh, that's all you could do. And then, you know, lead the rest to God. So, yeah. Well, we could go on for hours and hours more about life and sports and faith and poetry and art and social justice and all kinds of stuff. Um, but we don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to set a standard of having a five-hour podcast. <laughs> We're so, gonna have to have a part two. Yeah, easy. Um, thank you. Quack, 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 quack. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just referencing sports things that I love. We're <laughs> <laughs> we leading Ducks up to something big right now. I'm confused. Um, <laughs> quack, quack, quack. Um, it's knuckle puck time. <laughs> Okay, one last sports thing that I have to say. <laughs> as much as I love the Mighty Ducks franchise, I snicker in my soul every time. Not the first one. I think it was the second or third one. But when they – basically, when they have this fictional community that does not exist, and that is a bunch of black kids in the inner city <laughs> playing <laughs> hockey on a basketball court <laughs> – well, where in the world does that happen? It's knuckle puck time. No, it's not. I'm about to break your ankles. It's basketball time, player. You know what I'm saying? Like, we on a basketball court with a hockey puck and some hockey sticks? No. Ain't nobody playing hockey into some trash cans in your Jordans. You hooping. No. <laughs> Disney really tried to sell that like that bug exists. There is no street team 
hockey league. It's not happening. Not, it's not. And one hockey. No. Knuckle puck. Get out my face. Oh, it was a beautiful fantasy though. It was hilarious. You're the first person I've ever had really go off on that. I didn't even know about that. Uh, it's in the second one because that's when he joins the team. Um, you are 100% right. <laughs> it's fiction. <laughs> yeah. Total fiction. Fiction. That was good, though. <laughs> we we, rec- we highly recommend watching it. The second one is the best one. But <laughs> Anyways, I'm done. Sports are good. <laughs> Quoted by Micah. Sports are good. Is, is sports is good. <laughs> well, after all that, thanks for making time for us. Thanks for being on the show. Um, you have a lot going on. Like you said, you have a lot coming out. There are a lot of ways to access it. Do you want to tell the people where Absolutely. to find you and all that so, stuff? So everything is just my first and last name, Micah, M-I-C-A-H, Borne, like the born identity, B-O-U-R-N-E, but then with the S on the end. Borne, B-O-U-R-N-E-S, dot com. On Instagram, which is Micah Borne. Facebook, Micah Borne. Um, but yeah, I have a lot of stuff. I have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Micah Borne if you want to support me monthly um, and get some really cool perks. Um, if you just want to keep up, you can sign up for my newsletter uh, on my website. Um, but yeah, 2020 is going to be... A big year of creativity for me. So, yeah, my book is coming out first. I'm also going to do an audio book of that. Um, so, yeah, if you just want to hear me reading you poems uh, to sleep every night, <laughs> it'll be 50-something poems of me just reading. So, anyways, so, yeah, I'll have a book, an audio book, getting my LeVar Burton on. And, um, <laughs> and then I'll have a hip-hop project coming out. And then possibly that folk project with Lucy also coming out. But that might... Depending on when things happen, that might be in 2021. But either way, I'm going to be releasing a lot of content. Follow me on Instagram. That's my favorite social media platform. And I always announce also when I have, like, local shows, if you're around Southern California, when my book comes out, which we're hoping for spring, maybe late March or April, I'll be doing a lot of events. I'll do a big book release, but also several events around Southern California between San Diego, Long Beach, L.A. Well, I'll do probably at least three or four events. So would love to see you at the book release. Um, and yeah, and if you're not familiar with my work, I have a pretty significant back catalog of stuff to listen to. Uh, so, yeah, my most recent album is called A Time Like This. It's pretty dope. Check it out. Yeah. There's a lot, so go for it. Everybody I know that listens to it is floored by it. I share Micah as much as possible. Get some merch. Get that Fight Evil with Poetry merchandise. Mm-hmm. Wear it around. I get so many comments. I mean, <laughs> you started the line because you got comments, but I get comments all the time about it. And I'm always like, I don't write any poetry, but you can. <laughs> Let's do this. That's awesome. So, <laughs> Yeah. And be ready for tomorrow. Jake vs. Ham. The it's ham's going down. <laughs> that is not. That's not. That, that's not accurate. It's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> That it seems much more likely that the ham would be coming up. Yeah, you're going to lose to a ham, bro. No, I'm not. <laughs> I got no faith, bro. <laughs> I've only had like one person openly say that they think that I can do it. I think even if you could, you shouldn't. <laughs> I think it's going to hurt. <laughs> 
Ideally, it probably will hurt. <laughs> ideally, ideally what? I don't think ideally was the word I wanted no, to use. No, not at all. But hey, man, more power to you. All right. Peace. Get us out of here. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Hope you guys had a great time. We'll be back Tuesday with our buddy Khalil. It's going to be a fun one. It's going to be very funny. We might yell at each other. If I survive, actually, I didn't even think about it. I might not survive um, tomorrow. So make sure you guys uh, tune in at roughly 1 o'clock. We don't know where we'll be, but we'll be somewhere, and I'll be – I don't even know if it's enjoying ham at the point, but I will be hamming. <laughs> so be there or be square. Be there or be ham. I'm and going ham. <laughs> Y'all need to play that song. Let me go don't worry that was inaudible for us as well um but yeah have a great have a great weekend you guys uh stay safe out there um and yeah signing off from bob's office find us on instagram twitter that one yeah only those two right yeah we're on apple music you are probably listening to us on either apple or spotify so thank you uh, remember, F-R-O-M-B-O-B-S-O-F-F-I-C-E. And I'm about to eat a H-A-M. Your name is... Oh, I'm Jake Mathis. I really thought you were going to pull that off perfectly, and I was so proud of you. And then you did everything, and then you didn't do that. <laughs> I'm Jacob Bomber. I'm Michael Bornese. Have a good one. <laughs>